everybody. Welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Thank you very much for joining us today. It is our third and final installment of this season's Three Non-Bonds Film Festival. <laughs> third. My name is Scott Powell, and as always, I'm joined by my brothers in Bond across the pond, Joshua Taylor and Jeffrey Chapman. Hello. Hello. Hello, guys. Good to see you. Good to, Good see, to see you all. Our mm-hmm. listeners can't see it, but Jeff's wearing a, a bitch and Jimi Hendrix shirt there. Props. Is there any link to that Jimi Hendrix uh, shirt in today's show? Any Anything that's uh, the least bit? I was going to say, if there's anyone that I would want to play the zither, it would probably be Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. he'd light it on fire, right. and there's probably a lot of people that would appreciate that. Uh, but it I don't think it would go for as much money on the on the black market as if it was his regular uh, Stratocaster. Yeah, if you uh, if you're wondering where we're going with this black market zithers, <laughs> Jimi Hendrix, just stay tuned, everybody. We're, <laughs> we're going to confuse the hell out of you today as we uh, negotiate the troubled waters of Carol Reed's The Third Man. Now, this uh, film from 1949 was uh, Double O Taylor's choice. For this season's festival, so just as a matter of introduction, a matter of course, a matter of welcome, Josh, why don't you tell the good folks at home why you chose this film? Well, it was fresh in my memory. I had only seen it uh, a couple of months ago, because I ordered it for uh, our Noir podcast, but then I decided this would work really well with the three non-bonds theme, so I decided, you know, to include it with that, and and I am also going to dive a bit too, a bit deeper on it on the lighting the pipes no wire uh, episode, which of course uh, I, I've been been kind of planting in between episodes of our regular lighting the pipe series that me and Scott contend with uh, every month. Uh, most of all, though, uh, I guess yeah, I guess it it has like an international um, appeal. Like it has that kind of it's not like a, a globe trotting story, but it's set in Vienna post war. It involves the black market. It has like spies and, and gangsters and police forces and whatnot and intrigue and suspense and there's a guy who wants to do the right thing and there and then there's a girl tied up in it and then there's uh, an overarching villain to the whole story. I just figured it worked well into the Bond oeuvre, so to speak. Yeah, I think it does work very well indeed into the oeuvre and uh, not to mention, well, not embarrassingly, but I, I didn't, I hadn't seen this film before, so. That's a lie for me. I had seen it when I was like 18 years old when I think oh. a, a film a film instructor at university told me you mm. should see this movie. It was on like our, our it wasn't on one of the films that we watched. It was on like one of the syllabi that we are supposed to kind of go do in our own time, you know. But I wasn't like yourself. I wasn't a film major. I was just taking it as an elective. Uh, I had a lot of more yeah. books I needed to read than films I had to watch. So I made the choice to not go for that. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that I came to it um, I didn't do it as a project at uni, so uh, it was just something yeah. that I, I saw quickly. You know what I mean? As you do often in in those environments. Yeah. So it's would you say that I... you would have been a, a film sergeant major? <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. I wasn't even. I wasn't even a film drill drill sergeant. I was, uh, <laughs> I, I was Gomer Pyle. That's what I was. Gomer Pyle. Nice. I was just going to say, uh, guys, that. Um, I, this is something that I've always, this is a film that I've always heard about being talked about, you know, in terms of like, you know, the film historians canon, right, about what films you need to mm-hmm. see. Uh, I know this was a huge big uh, thing on the Criterion collection, and then it was like taken off in the late 2000s. Uh, someone else got the rights uh, 
which I believe is um, Studio Canal. Uh, they yeah. got the rights over over Criterion, and apparently, like the copy of the Criterion Blu-ray is like one of those lost treasures of like oh. of uh, film studies of I guess of film enthusiasts. Uh, so much is that people joke about, you know, like, oh yeah, you have a copy of the Third Man Criterion. All right, man, let's do business. You know, it's almost like one of those like hot <laughs> it's commodities. Like that's going in the black market. Yeah, yeah if you go yeah. on, if you go yeah. on eBay or even Amazon, like you're, you, 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 it's very expensive to get. Well, a, a, criterion a collections are always expensive, anyways. But I can imagine, but more than a Criterion <laughs> collection, like Criterion yeah. collection normally will average you between thirty-five to like fifty dollars Canadian. Whereas, like this right now on, on Criterion, you're going to pay over two hundred dollars for it in some places. Ooh. It's it's pretty insane. But the special features yeah, I heard it's are a collector's are, item are unparalleled on it, right? So, uh, but yeah. But the thing is that I never saw this film in film studies, and I saw many films there, uh, many seminal films during my time, you, you know, in academia. But I did not see this film, so it's always been at the back of my mind. And then I figured three non bonds would be the perfect opportunity to bring it up. So, yeah, and of course. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool, man. All right. Well, it, it is. It's going to be an, an interesting chat. I look forward to to hearing what we uh, what we all make of it. Because not only have we not talked about this before, but we really haven't spoken to each other since our last episode, our sixty and sixty for sixty. We haven't really no. touched base too yeah. much. So this is, uh, you know, it's been a bit of rogue agent work here in this one. We've all had a mission and we've gone out and done it, but we haven't. We, we ended up being Ronan. Kill counts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Callaway right? gave his assignments yeah. out and, and, and we followed orders. Yeah. Uh, you know, guys, since we last had an episode, uh, quite a lot's happened in the Bond community, not least of which mm-hmm. uh, we've had ourselves um, most recently, Daniel Craig, in a very curious Belvedere vodka advertisement. Uh, I know our listeners will know exactly what we're talking about. The, the video is. See, I missed this. Week. I got to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did, I did send you the link. Um, through our group chat, but perhaps you uh, were busy making news for this episode. Let's go with that. But anyway, so um, I was, yeah, I was going to say that. Seen that it, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I saw it, and I thought it's a, it's a pretty, he's a pretty smooth operator, uh, just like the vodka. You know. <laughs> well, I don't like <laughs> vodka too much, and I'm, uh, I'm not a fan of that clip, man. I got to be honest. I think that adds a bit cringy, even for Craig on on the nose, having a laugh, having some fun. It's, a, it's got it's nothing to do with him dancing. It's just it's a paycheck. It's a paycheck, but the guy doesn't need a paycheck. Yeah. Like it strikes me as something that his kid's gonna grow up and be like, "Oh, Dad, like remember that time? Like that one? That's there forever now. Yeah, man. that is there forever. That's far like more, of all the things, you know. Yeah, wow. that's far more traumatizing for his kid than being seen than being seen uh, with his dad. Uh, holding him like in a baby, what was it? Like in a baby satchel. What was that thing that he was walking his kid oh, around yeah. in? Yeah. And then Pierce Morgan about. went all ballistic. Pierce Morgan's an idiot. And, uh, oh boy. Okay. Any, any dads or would be dads out there. Listen, um, you put your kids in a pompoose. Don't you worry about it. There ain't nothing wrong with it. Or a pamplemousse. Yeah. Or is that a grapefruit? What are they called? That's a grapefruit. <laughs> pamplemousse is a grapefruit. <laughs> is a grapefruit. <laughs> wow. Don't do put that. Put your kids Not in grapefruit right here. Advice. You heard it here first. Not, don't do it. Don't That's do it. parenting stinks. advice. It stinks. Uh, don't try it. Well, <laughs> I, I guess it's kind of doing some promotion maybe because I know in December the uh, we're getting the release on Netflix. I think it comes out theatrically before, but on Netflix we're getting The Glass Onion, which is the second mm. Knives Out film. So Yeah. yeah. 
So then, wait. That, so then, but because I heard that you can put onions in 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 martinis. So is that why maybe he did uh, the Belvedere vodka? Think that's you a, could put, you know, know like, a that's, little. That's a deep cut. That's a deep cut. If he's well, going, you yeah, have to cut it pretty deep. You know, to slice it up and put it in the glass. Yeah, so, this is true. I know, that's all I'm deep going and thin. With. Bringing it back. Deep Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're still talking about onions, aren't we? Yeah, we're okay. We're still talking about onions. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll peel it back, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to bring that back, but Jeff did. The, did you can't. <laughs> you can't. It sinks. You know, I tried. It, it can't. Reconstitute. Send in a wait. Send in a wait team. Reconstitute. Burn after watching. Yeah. So, did you actually have an opinion of it, Josh, or have you not seen it yet? I have not seen the video. Oh, okay, right. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's it's not interesting. Sure. It's an interesting one. I'll, check I that will, out. I will uh, check yeah. It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Timothy else? Dalton. Timothy Dalton, meanwhile, has uh, got a, a, a big part to play in the, the season of The Crown. I believe he's playing yep. um, oh, Princess, yeah. is, is the Princess's Lover or something like that. I haven't, I haven't well, he plays anything. the older version of uh, Pete Townsend. If you remember Townsend, Captain Townsend, was like oh uh, yeah at least yes yes he was in the first season of the crown he was like margaret's first lover and he mm. was also like the i guess the batman to her, her father george the uh sixth yeah and then after george dies uh he's still around and they're having an affair and i believe mm. uh tommy lasalas who was like you know the guy that runs the royal household and i guess the queen mother teamed up to basically get him out uh because you know he's he, he's he's divorced uh, but his wife is still alive, so there's no way that Margaret can marry him, no matter what, right? So, but then apparently he comes cool. back in the fifth season, oh, and well. that's Timothy Dalton. So I'll be Instead checking that out. Yeah, the Crown is definitely pulling some good British talent on there. I mean, like for two seasons mm-hmm. they had Charles Dance as uh, Mountbatten, and then I mean not to mention you know like Olivia Coleman and uh, Helena Bonham Carter, Tobias Menzies, and now they have like uh, what's his name. McNulty, uh, what's the actor's name? Dominic West. Oh, uh, yeah, he plays, Dominic he West. Yeah. Plays, he plays yeah. the older Charles. Yeah. And, um, he looks, yeah. He's doing a good job. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, they, they pull talent, and you see Bond actors on there, uh, like, like Dalton, for example, and other people. But you see, British TV is like that, where if you watch a show like Game of Thrones, for example, and then you start watching British TV, and you'll recognize everybody in every, everybody. <laughs> in, 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 in every exactly. British TV show that you watch, right, yeah. has been on... Mm-hmm. If there's a big show filming, a, a big series that's filming in England or a big movie filming in England, chances are you'll see all those actors on TV somewhere on the BBC or ITV or something like that, right? Exactly. Cool. Mm-hmm. What else has been but, going uh, the on in the Bond world? Well, we have uh, the Black Adam is doing really good in the box office despite critical bombing. Yeah. Uh, Pierce Brosnan, of course, plays Dr. Fate in that movie. A friend of mine mm-hmm. saw it, and I haven't seen it yet. But a friend of mine saw it, and he said that Brosnan has some great moments in the story, but also there's a couple parts where, like, maybe it was the editing or ADR or something where some of his dialogue comes off as if he's phoning it in a bit. I can't really say because I haven't seen the movie, so I'll judge for myself. But um, it's good. if he has some good scenes, at least, in the movie, I'll definitely check that out as a comic book fan. Uh, I don't know how what, what, what this means for, like, the rest of the DC franchise, which has always been struggling up against the Titan of Marvel, right? Um, mm-hmm. Trying to catch up with it, but it's good that Pierce is, you know, he's making money. Oh, and he also had a grandchild, I guess, which <laughs> yeah. is much more important he's making money. than a yeah, movie. I guess so. 
I'd yeah. rather have. I'd rather be making that money. But yeah, it's good that Pierce is making. Here's to Pierce. Well done, son. Get yourself some money. <laughs> exactly. This, it's good we know what the threshold is today, huh? <laughs> Did you know that Rosin was eating ramen noodles for the last two years? That's right. Oh yeah, absolutely. He's been saving the half the half a sachet per pack. You know, he can't. He can't. He got to save that. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. You got to save it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He's (laughs) siphoning his uh, his his pocket. He has that tandoori chicken ready for special occasions. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, guys, um, here's something that has also been going on in the Bond world lately. Um, I recently completed my reading of Kim Sherwood's Double or Nothing, and oh, capital! Yeah, I I, I promised that we'd uh, we do a, rev- a review of it on the show, and we will. Um, but I'm kind of also waiting for one of, if not both of you, to join up and read that book with me because I think that it's um, it's really worth having a panel discussion on. Uh, don't get me wrong; I'm quite happy to share my thoughts now. I, I'm. Anyone who's not read it, uh, get yourself a copy of it, because without saying too much, I can tell you that the James Bond world is in very safe and very caring hands with this writer. She she treats not just the character of Bond, who is missing in this book, the first of three, but she treats the world and the world of Fleming and the world of the characters and also the world of the fan, I think she, and, and the reader, she treats them all with, uh, with due diligence and respect, but also pushes the boat, challenges conventions, brings it to a, a place where um, I am really, really excited. Uh, not just as a Bond fan, but also as just a reader of good literature, man. Like she has got real solid control of that pen or typewriter, whatever, or keyboard, fuck, I don't know how she writes, but, uh, yeah, man, <laughs> it's, it's good, and, of course, you would expect me to effuse a little, uh, with a new Bond book, but it was so nice to be in the world of Bond, but not have to follow Bond, instead, to think about some of these other agents who are main players mm. in these, in this trilogy, uh, Bond is there, every step of the way, in the background, he has influenced the characters, their motivations, some more than others, um, but the changes to MI6, the interesting uh, evolution of certain characters that we know, and also a tipping of the hat to characters that we never met, but maybe should have in the past. You know, like she does things mm-hmm. like within within the world, the franchise of Bond. But it's like really, world building. Really interesting. It's world building, man. And um, That's yeah, cool. That's it's, good. it is cool. Like it's It's really good. And I would recommend everybody listening to, uh, if you haven't already, Get yourself a copy of Double or Nothing. I know it's not yet released in America and Canada, is it? I don't think it's out yet. Well, now you're just teasing it. it. No, it's, it? it's, available, it's available in Canada in mass market paperback. Okay, I can get cool. it off Amazon. Right. I yeah. checked it out. Okay, I've well, been listening to your... Uh, what is it? Your professions of... Your professings of... No, what's the term? My admiration. I, think of, I'm try- I was thinking that your Excursion. acclamation of this book right now... There, yeah. I, I think acclamation... Yeah. Uh, yeah, your acclamations of excellence. There we go. Let's go with that. Let's just say I need uh, more cool. copy. I mean, especially because you're a yeah. Bond fan and just the way you're describing that uh, sort of like a a refreshing uh, world building of the Bond world with side characters uh, that either we know or don't know 
but makes sense in the world. And then it kind of gives the fans, this is, I mean, I'm just, I guess I'm kind of rehashing what you're saying, but to me as a Bond fan, and again, I don't know uh, the literary world like you guys do, but uh, to me that, that really does kind of sell me on it. So thank mm. you. <laughs> it's great. And you, you, and you particularly would love it because some of the agents that we follow are, you know, they're coming into MI6 from different, from different ways and there's a lot of craft work in here there's a lot of spy craft there's a lot of military mm. uh, she's really deeply researched this or perhaps she's a gun nut maybe she's a military mm. nut um, but her it's interesting her grandfather was George Baker who of course was in Majesty's Secret mm. Service and has a, a, a quite and, a fabled fabled reputation in the Bond world <laughs> absolutely yeah uh, but it's just, just a really really fun book and you know just to put a pin in it, I suppose, because we'll get to it later, but just to put a pin in it, I'll say that um, if you've been listening to our Literary Gun Barrel episodes, right now Josh and I are making our way through the John Gardner books, you'll know that we don't like every Bond story. Like, if you listen mm-hmm. to our Ian Fleming reviews, you'll know we don't just gush okay. about it. Like, we're very critical about the stories, but this is one that I feel very, very strongly about, you know, claiming yeah it's it's one of the better ones i've read in uh, in recent memory it of course it's 30 years beyond 40 years beyond what josh and i are reading right now in terms of the you know the gardener stories but um one of the best car chases i've read i would love to see the car chase in this book put to film i would just love it it would be awesome but we'll wait to wait to see what you think that's quite a telling point it's it's very uh to me anyways a car chase is something that you would think is better visualized it's on hard. film. Yeah. So, yeah. You're, uh, yeah. you know, and yeah. the fact that you're selling a car chase that's written on on paper, and that that is so exciting that you want to see yeah. it on film. That, oh, that's pretty I cool. That was awesome. That is a good endorsement for sure. Yeah. yeah. So we'll see. We'll see what happens and, there. Really excited. She she just yeah. finished up book number two. Sent it to the publishers recently. Uh, yeah. So well okay, done, good. Kim Sherwood. Keep, so she's up, not, keep up the awesome work. Good. So she's not doing the George R. R. Martin thing and waiting every seven, eight, ten years to release a book, basically. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think the I George R. R. Martin so. um, way of doing things is basically how not to do things. But that, hey, look, he's got more money than me. Uh, so, yeah. you know, yeah. he's doing something right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyways. So's Pierce uh, Brosnan, but, but, according to Josh, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, just as a sidebar in the, in the literary uh, stream of things, uh, so Scott just recently sent me a Christmas package, which I haven't opened yet, but unwrapped in the package was the next two John Gardner books, uh, Roll of Honor and uh, Nobody Lives Forever. So there's going to be some upcoming uh, John Gardner additions to uh, Bound by Numbers for you guys to enjoy. I have also received a package uh, allegedly from Scott. I haven't had it look, I don't know, I haven't opened it yet. I'm not sure if I'm going to get hit with like a bunch of glitter or anthrax, but I'm looking forward to it, and I will open it at a, you know, at a safe time and in a safe place uh, later on. Mm-hmm. Nice. <laughs> close, close the door. Make sure it just so that only takes t- takes exactly. you out. That's all that matters. Christmas, well, exactly. Wait, yeah. wait till Christmas. Just wait till Christmas, and yeah. uh, don't don't get too excited. But yeah, yeah. A little something. Well, it's from too late here. now. I mean, yeah. I know you've really it's, built it up. <laughs> Uh, anything else going on? Probably. Are we going to deal with it here today? No. Go check out your internet. I'm not. We're, we're done. We're done. Yeah. It's a wash. It's a wash, buddy. That's it. World of Bond is now a wash. So let's move on and get on <laughs> with the show. Yeah. We're here to talk about The Third Man by Carol Reed. 
starring Joseph Cotton, Orson Welles, and an all-star cast. So, well, maybe not an all-star cast, but Trevor Howard, man, he's pretty cool. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's get into definitely. it. Let's get into it. So the Fast Facts, uh, as Scott said, directed by Carol Reed, uh, who beyond this film, his filmography includes uh, Odd Man Out, The Fallen Idol, and much later on, Oliver, the the, the musical from 1968, uh, which featured oh, his... Oh, you've got to pick a pocket or two, boys, you've got to pick a pocket or two. <laughs> Fagin. film featured... Uh, as uh, Bill Sykes, Oliver Reed, who is in fact Carol Reed's nephew. Ah, it all connects. It's like the Ouroboros, a snake eating its tail. It just keeps going around and around. It's the nepotism that we love of Hollywood and the British stage and screen. That is Hollywood, yeah. Yeah, because Oliver Reed is, well, I guess he made his mark as, as Bill Sykes in the film. To me, I first encountered Oliver Reed just on, on his very last film, which was Gladiator, in which he died Ooh, midway through yes. the filming. But we all remember Proximo, the uh, villainista in Africa, who takes Maximus in as another one, one of his, uh, you know, gladiators, and ends up, you know, having this great kind of arc, you know, of, of, of a man who, you know, who he has sort of a redemption arc in Gladiator. But suffice it to say, Oliver Reed is incredibly memorable in that film, like the glory of Rome speech that he does to Maximus, you know, it's just one of my most favorite, it's one of my favorite scenes in the entire film, right? You should hear it, Maximus. The sounds of the the Colosseum. Like just how he does, how Oliver Reed does it. It's so fucking good. Um, It's sad that he went out on that movie, but as we know, he, Richard Harris and Peter O'Toole were notorious drinking buddies and they were happy the way, I guess they ended their lives, I suppose. But uh, I don't know. They were quite I don't know, I don't know that anybody with who, who has those problems <laughs> is really happy in their lives that way. No, it's just that they can't fucking yeah. help it. Yeah, I mean no, they are actors. They got paid not. to act, so maybe they yeah, just put on a good show, Burton. right? Absolutely. I am Richard Button, my favorite. Yeah, absolute <laughs> favorite. Yeah, great. That, w- that Welsh. <laughs> For anyone who loves Richard Burton, uh, by the way, I saw this video of him being interviewed. I, I forget what it was, but he was talking about his father. And when he went back to visit him in Wales and how just that whole lifestyle of he was his father was a coal miner and, and whatnot. And just just watching Richard Burton talk about his father, you know, uh, who, is, who has who had since passed away in the interview. It's just a beautiful, beautiful eight minutes of like, yeah, of nice. of reminiscing and whatnot. I recommend anyone to go find it. It's just fantastic. And the way how Richard Burton talks about his father is just so beautiful. So I, I recommend ch- checking that out. Uh, the way Richard Burton talks about anything, like I would let him read a grocery list, like just to listen yeah, to his voice. It's got I agree. Such yeah. exactly. I was going to say the same thing, like the phone book. Like I wouldn't. The care. phone yeah. book. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, like I myself, am not the biggest Liz Taylor fan, right? And sometimes I just can't associate kind of her gaudy, her gaudiness, you know, that she that she mm. eventually got into with Richard Burton. I I want to separate them because I find they're like in two different planes of existence to me and yet he comes down he comes down to that level you know and then you know and that's what he is right but it's a very he's a very 
interesting individual, Richard Burton. And uh, I don't think he gets enough credit, I think, you know, for what he did in Hollywood no. and in the film he does, industry he in, 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 he in general. He'd be a great Bond villain, actually. Richard Burton would have been a great Bond villain. But um, yeah. you you should check out his auto or his letters, his diaries, the diaries of Richard Burton. That's <laughs> awesome. I read it like I didn't read it in yeah. one sitting. It's a massive tome, but I definitely read it in yeah. like the, the course of like a few weeks, just bits at a time. Um, fascinating, fascinating stuff. The stories he tells, like because he was he was a diarist, right? Or a diarist, a journalist. No, yeah. What do you call him? Someone who takes diary entries regularly. Like he didn't miss many days. When he did, there was a reason for it. And until he got really, you know, really into his booze and mm. such later in life, he was very religious and meticulous about it. But fantastic perspectives yeah. on Hollywood life, literature, literature too. He was so well read. Anyway, this is getting us far away. I do yeah. apologize. Um, I yeah, am the third man, man here, and I'm bringing us away. So <laughs> back to you, the first man, the first man. So Oliver, going back to that film, that was the first, that was the only film that Carol Reed won Best Director for. Uh, he didn't win anything for The Third Man, uh, despite, you know, the acclaim that surrounds him because of that film. But uh, yeah, so he won much later in his career. He was born in 1906 in Putney, England, and he came from a theatrical family, and he got into acting when he was in his teens. So no surprise there, given the influences. Uh, this brought him in contact with the writer Edgar Wallace. Uh, who was known for writing thrillers and he became wallace's personal assistant up until wallace's death in 1932. he continued to work with wallace's production company which is called atp or associated talking pictures and beyond acting and writing there he dabbled with second unit directing and worked his way up to assistant director uh, which his proficiency caught the attention of producers who allowed him to direct what were essentially called quota quickies uh, by 1935. These were very low budget, pop, pulpy, but popular. And when the war came around, he joined the Royal Army Ordnance Corps uh, as captain. He, uh, he was placed in charge of the film unit and he made training in propaganda films and also films about like uh, psych, uh, the psychology of soldiers, how to deal with, I guess, trauma, that sort of stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. He dealt with that. He, he made films about that for the British Army. And uh a couple of actors, well-known actors, appeared in those, like Peter Ustinov, for example, because he also served mm -hmm. in the war. And mm -hmm. that's how Peter Ustinov got into film, from what I understand. Um, so after the war, uh, he made Odd Man Out, and that, uh, which starred James Mason. That was his first film as director. Uh, the producer of Odd Man Out was Alexander Korda, who was a known quantity in British cinema of the 30s and 40s. Uh, can he I just interrupt for a produced, moment? Like, Sorry. Yeah. Can I can I just say, this might be a first for Bond by numbers. You mentioned James Mason. I didn't do my James Mason impersonation. <laughs> you did not. I, <laughs> I kind of gave you a little bit of a uh, little bit of a gap it's, there. Yeah. He was, it's, it's here. He was it's here. Maybe you wouldn't notice. <laughs> do it. Do, do it. No. 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 I just. I just want to. I wanted to interrupt. Give me Van Egotistically. We see, we see your smirk. You want to do it. I, wanna, I, I wanted to interrupt with ego yeah, to let right. you know Here that my ego didn't interrupt you. <laughs> oh, very well. Okay. Thank that's me. Not, Thank that's me not later. narcissistic at all. <laughs> at all. Okay. And back all to right. you. But now, but now you strikes me, again. I want a smattering mm -hmm. of uh, Van Damme. You know what I mean? I want to hear that. But uh, Later. Mr. Capelin. Really, Mr. Capelin, is this necessary? <laughs> I can't do it. It's not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not doing it. Yeah. 
Uh, Sorry. So the producer uh, was Alexander Korda, and he, as I said, he's a known quantity in British films. The Thief of Baghdad, uh, The Four Feathers, uh, and later like some big epics like Alexander the Great and, and and whatnot, albeit failed epics. That was a big bomb, starring Richard Burton. Yes. It's quite a mess of a film if anyone if anyone has seen it. Uh, but Korda is the one that introduced Reed to author Graham Greene. And Graham Greene uh, wrote Odd Man Out. So they made two films together. Greene wrote Fallen Idol for uh, Reed and, of, and of course, The Third Man. Uh, the author Graham Greene, by the way, who Scott and I have talked about more than once on occasion, to put it mildly, on our Light in the Pipes podcast, he took a different approach to writing the screenplay. He came up with the story by creating his own source material, a novella called The Third Man. So he wrote a novella from this novella, which was uh, written through the point of view of uh, Major Callahan. Green crafted his screenplay. He traveled to Vienna in 1948, where he met Elizabeth Montagu, who gave him an extensive tour of the city. She also introduced him to the near, to the London Times Vienna correspondent, Peter Smolka, who had done a considerable work on the black market situation in Vienna at the time. So this set the germ of Green's story that we see in The I Third see. Man. Cool. Yeah. So the black market in Vienna post-war, uh, that's basically this, the setting that The Third Man um, presents to us. And uh, Jeff has, I believe, an article about the accuracy of the film. Uh, yeah. Cool. And actually, one thing I was going to mention in, in the, the individual you just mentioned, um, Smolka... I believe the bar was actually called uh, Smolka in the film, which is, I, I believe it was a reference to that individual. Oh, cool. Um, I'm just looking here at this article. It was saying uh, there was a, yeah, the fictional bar Smolka, and uh, they think that it had to do with um, a source of green, uh, Greens was uh, Peter Smollett, uh, a, a Times correspondent in Vienna, who apparently told mm -hmm. Green about a children's hospital and diluted antibiotics. Smollett was a Soviet double agent born in Vienna as Hans Smolka. Mm. So I think that's where they got the idea of the bar name, Smolka. Mm. Uh, and sorry, I'm, I'm, this is in an article um, that is actually uh, posted uh, in the British Medical Journal uh, in 2016. Uh, and uh, it's actually titled Fake Penicillin, The Third Man in Operation Claptrap. Um <laughs> So what I, basically um, what this article mentions, it, it, it basically talks about um, the third man, but also sort of the, the actual historical accuracy and, and what the film was based on, 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 you know, what was actually true about it and uh, talking about the, the black market uh, in post-war uh, Austria and uh and just the truth behind the fiction of the film and, you know, how it relates. And it's, it's quite interesting. Um, so in April 1946, uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War, American and British intelligence services arrested uh, seven men and three women in Berlin on charges of manufacturing, possession, and sale of fake penicillin. Uh, sound familiar? Uh, a former German army private was alleged was the alleged chief of the fake drug ring that included two former GIs in love with the Frauleins and an American doctor with a passion for fine cameras. 
who got at least 13000 which is $170,000 in today. Uh, well, this is 2016 dollars in cash for one Berlin druggist for penicillin. Um, and basically, it was uh, the fake penicillin was uh, prepared in two forms: vials of glucose liquid and stolen uh, used penicillin bottles filled with crushed uh, quinacerine. And they were sold for three hundred dollars, which would be the uh, in nineteen forty six dollars, which would uh, it's around thirty nine hundred dollars today, which is that's a lot. <laughs> and uh, yeah, basically. And obviously, so if you could imagine, like, selling fake medicine, obviously you can imagine what that would do. Um, it, it, it killed people, all that kind of stuff. So that's where, you know, it, in the film when they show the um, the children's hospital with all the people that had uh, complications and uh, from the fake penicillin, that's where part of it came from. Uh, and apparently the, the, the whole, like, criminal network that was this of the, the the drug ring and all that was actually uncovered when a drunken gang member dropped a bottle uh the penicillin bottle in a bar oh um, wow yeah interesting um and uh, apparently um so and I, sorry i just want to clarify that this article again was from the um the uh british medical journal um from two uh uh, for, it was uh, correspondence, and it was with uh, from Paul Newton and Bridget Timmerman. I just want to advise that. So there was another article um, that was. Uh, it's actually also kind of through uh, medicine. It, uh, I did find this article, uh, and it's actually very recent. Uh, it was posted um, on April fourth, twenty twenty two. Uh, and it's it was posted in the British Society for the History of Medicine, and the article was is called um, The Third Man Was True, Penicillin Reports for Austria. Uh, and this was uh, posted uh, by Ali Kopik. Uh Why was Vienna's black market so active after the war? Basically, um, the British and the American scientists companies developed penicillin into uh, a wonder drug following its discovery by uh, Alexander Fleming, uh, Scottish slash Canadian. We all know him. Yep. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, what was interesting is that uh, as soon as uh, reasonable amounts of penicillin could be produced, uh, some countries outside of Britain and the United States began receiving donations and supplies. Uh, but here's the thing is that with Germany and Austria being access countries, um, they basically were not given the same amount of aid um, after the war. Um, and so a lot of like sci- scientists and, and, and people like that were not trained or, or given the, the same amount of assistance and aid uh, when creating these, uh, the, you know, this type of, of medicine. Uh, and so that's why uh, there was a black market made because it was, it was scarce. And, and mm-hmm. so that's how you could see what I was saying uh, with the previous article, just mentioning the astronomical prices and, and how it was such a commodity. Um, and that's unfortunate. And so that's obviously when you see in the film with Harry Lyme, just sort of trying to, um, dilute it and, and, to, uh, and, you know, making it fake to, to sort of spread the wealth for him, but obviously causing, um, large amounts of, of, uh, illnesses and, and even death with, uh, yeah. the fake, uh, penicillin. It, it mentions here that, uh, 
within the the Red Army that uh, if you're caught with a venereal disease or, or gonorrhea, that it's actually a uh, a court martial offense. And so that's wow. when um, the, sorry, I said wow, like that. That I find that oh, really yeah. surprising. Oh yeah, wow, yes, I mean, yes, I, yes. I guess it's you're allowed uh, to comment. Sorry, yes. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Um, yeah and and just... so it was used as uh, as a bargaining tool and, and, and currency to actually get Russian soldiers to either defect or, uh, you know, pass along intelligence. And then they would give them penicillin and, um, and other uh, medicine. We should uh, clarify, too, that a court-martial in terms of the Russian army – uh, that yeah. is not, you know, you're stripped of your rank and go live in shame. That is a, that's a firing squad. Yeah. Potentially, yeah. yes. That's, that's a, good, a very that's a good, good chance. Very good chance. Late 40s, late um, 40s, like in in the in the Beria era. Yeah, that's a firing squad, 100%. Well, let's just say we, we yeah, it wouldn't be fun. Uh, and I, so I, I just wanted to sort of just mention that. It, it's, it's really, because I really didn't know much about um you know post-war austria and it's i i really enjoyed watching the film just seeing because i'm there was definitely some um i mean josh obviously you you can uh explain this better but uh, i think it was filmed in some locations that were in europe and obviously i and i don't think that was sets like i think that was still actually uh ruined parts of certain cities correct I will get into that in the production design. Oh, okay. uh, but, but yes, it was filmed on location in Vienna. Mm-hmm. And there were circumstances where they used uh, studios in uh, in Vienna, but also right. in, in England. But the ones that were done in England were for a certain particular reason, uh, which I'll get to right. shortly. Yeah. But what you see uh, in the film, it, the bombed out cityscapes, uh, the, the streets that they're navigating, that is post-war Vienna. And it's very really interesting because, again, uh, me personally, I don't know much about uh, post-war uh, Austria, and that kind of, so it was it was really interesting to see a film that's all. I mean, the film came out in 1949, 1950, depending where you are on which side of uh, you know forty uh, nine the ocean. Yeah. Well, no, I came. I'm saying, but then it was released. I think it, it was released in North America. I think in early 1950. There uh, were two, yeah, there were two versions. There was a British cut, and then there was yeah. an American cut. Exactly. Um, but again, it, it's very interesting and obviously very, uh, you know, it's very, st- I mean, the war had only been like, uh, you know, five or less years. So it's still very, uh, relevant and, and still very, you know, it affects everyone. So it was interesting to see like a post-war film dealing with, uh, it's not just when you see like, you know, in the forties when they would have like Cowboys and, uh, Cowboys and Indians films or other things, where you're actually dealing with um, like current current uh, state of affairs, and so it was really interesting to see that and the way the way the film was was shot. Obviously, like we're going to get into that, but I thought it was it was it was pretty neat. And uh, anyway, so I'm getting a little off topic here, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's the name of the game today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, anyways, I thought that was interesting with the post-war uh, Austria, um, and it's kind of quite eye-opening. Green did his research, that's, that's for uh, sure. And those articles is not what he did. Yes, he did. Yep. Certainly did. He's always Green in, to me has always been persistent in in establishing a grounded reality in his stories, you know, despite uh, you know, maybe a smirk of satire every now and then. He he researches his stories quite quite well and he makes you feel that these things 
could happen or have happened. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, well, satire I as, and as research a, are not mutually exclusive, right? The two, the two can be very, very much connected. Yeah, some some of the be best satire is well researched, but um, and I you know, think we had mentioned this previously with other um, operatives um, that you know, whether it's the First World War or Second World War, that ha um, authors were qu quite a few of them were either employed with uh, the secret service or intelligence agencies uh, within, you know, whichever um, militaries. And it's not uncommon, you know, when you have authors and that kind of thing being doing that. So uh, that that's, it's not, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's a, it's sort of like out of the box thinkers, you know, and that's where you get a lot of people that can uh, disseminate intelligence and, and, and be able to, to do that kind of work. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> That's his story, and he's sticking to it. Well, almost. Uh, let's talk about the screenplay to The Third Man. So the novella is narrated by Major Calloway. And at the beginning of The Third Man, that's supposed to be Callahan years later reflecting back on the time period. So basically, The Third Man is his kind of espousing of, you know, of the events that uh, Holly Martins uh, endures through those couple, those couple of days. Hmm. Now, the ending of the novella is actually quite uplifting. Uh, the same thing happens. It's still Harry's funeral, and Anna is still walking down the cemetery road, and she still shuns uh, Holly in that sequence. But then, as Calloway looks back from the jeep, he then sees Holly run after her. And then all of a sudden they lock arms and they and they walk away into the sunset, so to speak. And Carol Reed hated that ending. Yeah, he preferred to have the film end with the romantic story unfulfilled. A uh, Green and co-producer uh, David Oselznik, the famous independent producer who had made Gone with the Wind and other classics, argued over the issue. Selznick wanted the happy ending of the novella, and Green was pressured to agree, but he sided with Reed in the end. And Green says, one of the few major disputes between Carol Reed and myself concern the ending, and he has been proved triumphantly right. At least Selznick was able to deliver two of the film's sterling performances by providing the actors Joseph Cotton and Holly as Holly Martins and Orson Welles as Harry Lyme. So I guess the American distribution and the two main and the two lead actors were conditional for Selznick to co-produce the film with uh, the Cordas. And for the Bond connection, um, which we'll get into here, Reed's assistant director was a very young Guy Hamilton. And he maintains in a 2015 interview that despite disagreements like that mentioned above, Reed and Green were the team the film required to make the third man work the way that it did. So its success was uh, attributed to their, their teamwork, to, to making changes to the original novella, to the original screenplay, and making that work at, on the final process. You see, that's interesting because I watched a, a special feature, an interview with Guy Hamilton. He, um, he does quite a feature on my uh, Blu-ray, and he credits Alex Corda significantly for this film. He says that he says that given the interference by Selznick, Selznick was interfering all the time and almost every time Selznick interfered, he had very little positive or actual worthwhile contribution. 
But Guy Hamilton sings Alex Corda's praises. He said that of all of the interruptions on set in the production, they were sensible, they helped to improve things, whereas, and he, and he didn't interrupt very much. He was very, he was very, very kind of distant. But when he got involved, he got involved sensibly, practically, and he was a very supportive producer, whereas yeah. Selznick was really interfering. And Guy Hamilton really made an, an, um, a deliberate point of outlining the contrast between the two producers. And I find it funny here that in, in your research, at least that didn't come out. The guy Hamilton just kind of credited Reed yeah. and Reed and Green because uh, he in, was in an interview said that Alex Corda was a huge, important factor to this film. Well, maybe the, the interview didn't touch on uh, that. The parts that I got didn't touch on the Alex Corda part of yeah, it, yeah. but he does Fair mention enough. how yeah, like yeah. Reed and, and Green worked well together. And he says the most annoying person on the set actually was Orson Welles. Shocking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can believe that. I can believe yeah, that as well. Of, he has a bit of, he has a bit of an ego. Let's just say that brilliant director, but a bit of, a bit of an ego. <laughs> um, yeah. He's great. I though. think I think the epitome of Orson Welles' over the topness has to be him voicing Unicron in Transformers the movie. You don't get any oh, bigger yes. Orson Welles than that. Yes. If anyone has seen I, I that, Unicron that. is like is like the oldest like Transformer, <laughs> and he lives like in space, and he's like this giant robot, and then he gets destroyed, and there's just like his Rosebud? head floating in space. Um, do you remember that, Scott? Transformers the movie. I do. Yes, but. Just because, if I remember correctly, it was more than meets the eye. So I, I don't know that I saw it all. <laughs> <laughs> now, if I had done that uh, in a James Mason voice, coffee. if I had done that and in a James Mason that's hard voice, for Josh. yeah, yeah, it's tough work for Josh. Yeah, yeah. Well said. <laughs> well said. I just like that that whole Orson Welles connection. And Orson Welles, you know, he's a bit of a, yeah, he's definitely an, an ego and a controversial figure. I mean, it was a pain in the ass making Citizen Kane, even though it was a masterpiece, you know, as people say. Nope. I'm not going to go into, like, what I fully feel about that film because we're not talking about Citizen Kane. Uh, but, you know, Orson Welles is definitely a character. And, uh, yeah. Read asshole. But but that but that's interesting that, um, yeah, because Hamilton mentions Orson Welles, but he never got to mention Decorda. I can see David O. Selznick being a pain in the ass, though. Absolutely. That guy had a bit of a control. Yeah. Well, he yeah, also he, never he, slept, he, did he? Like, he, he yeah. did, like, two hours a day. He got a two-hour nap, and he was on these – he was on speed, essentially. Like, doctors would just fucking prescribe him speed all the time because he wanted Not to see Selznick, so uh, – Reed was. No, Selznick. Selznick. Back, Reed, oh, he was – he was way fucked up on it. Like his son was talking about uh, the 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 feature I was watching. Oh, like, in, in general, was, in general, okay. In general, but at this time, he was like he got like twenty trying to get twenty five hours out of every single day, and he would just crash every Sunday. He'd sleep like for twenty hours or something. He he was Selznick apparently was just off the rails at this time. Okay, well that well that, that that definitely does make sense because his big producing days were probably over, and I was just trying to find another picture for him to do that was, you know, of of quality. Uh, I will say that uh, the reason why I kind of contradict you there a little bit because I thought maybe you were confused, and that's my <coughs> fault. I apologize. But uh, Carol Reed himself was like working twenty four hours a day on the on on the third man when he was shooting it. Like he was on Ben is a Dream uh, just to keep himself going. So now I mentioned that Reed won an Oscar for Oliver. Can you guess what was the single Oscar that was awarded to the third man? 
Oh, yes, I do know. I do know. It was uh, Krasker's, it must have been Krasker's photography. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he won the Oscar yeah. for Best Black and White Cinematography. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is it interesting. Wasn't for that, that kid. A- it wasn't the supporting acting Oscar for that kid who threw the ball in the apartment, was it? That kid gives me night. That kid gives me nightmares. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine like the zombie or demonic version of that kid like following you around? The, the I'd really don't of- want to, but now that- I am. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this nightmare, courtesy of Double O Taylor. So was it his regarding- ball that comes through like the elevator in The Shining? Is that the one? The oh boy! <laughs> and then the blood. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The deluge of blood down the hallway. Oh boy! Was he under the bed? Was he possessing Reagan in uh, in Georgetown there in 1973, 74? <laughs> well, so. Regarding cinematography, and absolutely, yeah, you are right, Scott. The shoot took six weeks. Uh, principal photography was in Vienna, as I mentioned, and that it, and it ended on December 11th, 1948. The city's own Siverine Studios was utilized as well. And the cinematographer, our man Robert Krasker, he was an expert wielder of black and white expressionist photography. He was Australian-born, and he worked under the quarters for years, and he was heavily influenced by film noir and one of Noir's big visual ref, um, influences, which is German expressionism. Uh, he worked with, with uh, Carol Reed once before on Odd Man Out. And, and, he, and after The Third Man, he, down the road, he did various works, including David Lean's Brief Encounter, and later uh, the epics Alexander the Great, El Cid, and the epic to end all epics, The Fall of the Roman Empire in uh, 64, uh, which was pretty much con- was considered the coda of the entire epic movement in Hollywood. And the, the death, it was considered also as sort of like the death knell of the old studio era, because after 65, you know, you enter, you know, the postmodern uh, death of the Hayes office, uh, you know, when Arthur Penn releases Bonnie and Clyde, everything starts to change in the industry, right? So uh, it was a big uh, milestone, I guess you could say. Now, the Noirish key lighting was employed to the, ex- to the extent of it being quite harsh, and he also employed what is now commonly called the Dutch angle. And that's that distorted angle to evoke chaos or uneasiness. Okay. Reed pushed himself. Cool. Yeah. And as I mentioned, he really pushed himself on the set, working all hours of the day and supporting himself only through increased doses of Benzedrine throughout the production. So mm. Hamilton talks about Orson Welles was very unhappy uh, during the production, particularly about filming in the sewers of Vienna. I mean, most people would be about that, I suppose. I mean, you know, hmm. everyone's That's allowed funny. to have their their picadillos about that, right? Of course, yeah. But, you're, uh, allowed, you're allowed that. But Joseph Cotton, when he went back to Vienna years later, uh, he went down to the sewers because he, he wanted to reminisce. And uh, I, I, I just, I think, I don't know, I think Joseph Cotton was a pretty cool guy. Orson Welles He's never awesome. seemed happy, though. Like, he never seems fucking personally happy. Dude, All the, panel the guy shows was married to Rita in, like, Hayworth. Yeah, how can he be upset? Rita Hayworth like, and had a baby with her, and then he left her. Or, like, the guy's I don't, an idiot. I don't he's get chas- it. <laughs> well, he's, he's gone now, but he was chasing something that didn't exist, which was some, you know, he wanted to be like uh, Brando in Superman. He wanted to be Brand- like Superman's father or something on Earth. Has he ever been happy? Do you ever hear of him being like, oh, man, what a guy. He was just such a raconteur, such a lovely man, so friendly with kids. He's always fucking miserable in everything I've ever heard of him. 
Like even when he was playing that trick on on America during War of the Worlds radio, you know, he oh, was yeah. always. And I don't know. Whatever. And also, too, Citizen Kane is an attack on on William Randolph Hearst, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's political uh, motivations behind him as well. So yeah, he was definitely yeah. unhappy. A mercurial character, that's for sure. And as I said, I mean, I know uh, Rita Hayworth had her own personal issues as well. So, I mean, we can't say course, that he was yeah. the fault of that marriage falling mm-hmm. apart. But still, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's just, you just mentioned about him not being happy. And I'm like, well, I mean, I find that hard to believe. But you know what? Just because someone is beautiful doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that uh, it's uh, paradise in terms of the marriage. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I'll have so to maybe... ask my wife. I'll have to ask my wife and see if it's uh, if it's true. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of being big beyond his britches too, he also played Car- he played Cardinal Wolsey in the in the Man for All Seasons, and that was someone that people thought rose a bit too high up, you know, in his position, yeah. right? So yeah. So <clears throat> regarding the sequence in Vienna, most of the time we are actually seeing a body double. Sets were constructed at Shepperton Studios outside of London to replicate the Viennese sewer system so that Reed could get the right action from Wells for that sequence. Mm-hmm. Working with Krasker, Reed had four camera units shooting in Vienna during the production, and Guy Hamilton ran one of them. But despite how much Wells annoyed them, Reed wanted him there. And many film historians point out that, you know, it's uh, it's Wells' work on Citizen Kane to an extent, the surrealist noir, uh, The Lady Shanghai, which also featured um, Orson Welles' uh, at, the, at, at, at the time uh, wife, Rita Hayworth, was very influential for Reed's style in The Third Man. If you see the, if you haven't seen The Lady of Shanghai, uh, that is a trippy fucking movie, and that's all I have to say. <laughs> Wells was on some sort of narcotic making that movie. Absolutely. Mm. Um now, aside from Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles, uh, Italian actress Alita Valley, or Valley as she was known, uh, was casted in the role of Anna Schmidt. And uh, interesting about Alita Valley, her name is Alita Maria Laura Frein Altenberger von Markenstein Frauberg. Oh, man. That's, uh, that's yeah. a mouthful. Imagine that, that on a hockey jersey. Ooh. Yeah, that, that that's her that's her uh, that's her full name, mm-hmm. and she yeah. and she was called at the time I guess in her early uh, the time of her rise in terms of like, popularity in the Italian film industry, uh, especially during World War II as Mussolini's favorite actress. Right now, I guess at the time that was probably a good accolade to get because hey, that means Mussolini's fascist police aren't going to round you up and take you away. At the same mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. that's not something you want stuck to your uh, mm. no pinned to your career going forward after the second world war. You know what I mean? Um, Hitchcock even tried to make her amuse uh, with the paradigm case, but she did not become a muse of the hitch and was only in one film under his direction. So that didn't work out well, Uh, but hitch is known notoriously trying to gather muses and then having them slip through his fingers. Right. So, yeah, he was a bit of a Greek God in that way. (laughs) (laughs) More like Hephaestus than Adonis in appearance, though. I'm not trying to body shame or anything like that, but <laughs> no, no. Given um, Hitchcock's uh, ugly personal character, uh, yeah, I think you can that's body shame him if you want. I mean, it's yeah. Hitchcock. He, he deserves it. Although Zeus parallels work for work for Hitchcock, though that's for sure. Oh yeah. Um. 
Now, Trevor Howard, as we talked about, he was cast as Major Calloway. Mm-hmm. Um, but the cast uh, reveals other Bond connections besides uh, Guy Hamilton and the crew. Uh, Bernard Lee, years before uh, he would first play M in 1962's Dr. No, is cast as Sergeant Payne. Uh, we have Jeffrey Keane, best known as Bo- to Bond fans as Defense Minister <laughs> Frederick That's Gray. Right. Yep, yep. He has a small role as a military policeman. And believe oh, yeah. him, there's also Robert Brown, who was M2.0, uh, you know, in the uh, late Roger Moore, early Dalton, sorry, not early Dalton, and the Dalton era, because mm-hmm. it was a very short era, as yeah. we know. Uh, Brown plays a young soldier in the sewer sequence. That's cool. I didn't pick that up for sure. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. So lots of Bond connections there. Um, As for the music, Carol Reed sort of fell in love with the zither player named Anton Karras. The way I understand it, Reed saw him playing at a restaurant and loving what he saw, got Karras to score his film, whisked him back to London for a six-week stretch to crank out a soundtrack. Now, Scott, I believe you have some points about the zither uh, being the man of extensive music background that you are. Yes, it's one of 412 instruments that I play. And today (laughs) I'll give you some information on the zither. The question is, of course, Josh and Jeff, which zither are you talking about? There are many varieties of zither. It is a traditional Austrian instrument. However, its origins, gentlemen, go all the way back to 433 BC in China with an instrument known as a gukun. That's right, a gukun. It's a a stringed instrument that was found in the tomb of some... um, Chinese uh, royalty. I'm not exactly sure who. Is it the Terracotta Warriors no, too? I forget the name. I, I, I forget the name of the emperor so. now. I don't okay. believe so. No, um, but it does go back that far. At least the stringed, uh, you know, uh, what, what, what do you call it? The stringed um, ancestor, the ancestors of it. It's an instrument, guys, that's played with two hands. It's it's essentially like a wooden box with a fretboard for melodies and free-sounding strings, about 40 free-sounding strings altogether, for bass and for chords, right? So you play it with two hands, one hand on the fretboard, and one works the free-sounding strings like you might with a, a pick or finger picks on the guitar, right? And... Um, as the story goes, Josh, you're correct. Uh, composer of the very uh, of the very famous Harry Lime theme was Anton Karras, a relatively unknown musician. During the production of the film, Carol Reed saw him in a bar in Vienna, offered him the job. Um, the score, as well, Karras was like kind of nervous about it. From everything I understand, he was quite anxious about this, but he. Improvise. Most I would of be. What you, you improvise most of what you hear as well. Like it wasn't Sounds your typical. Like it. it wasn't your typical Hollywood sort of. Okay, let's um, let's just write out a score, rehearse it, rehearse it. We'll choose the best cut. Like it, it wasn't like that. Um, it was all improvised, and each cue in the film has a real roughness and a variety to it because it uh, it was all improvised. So you're not going to find two cues that were alike in the score. That that's if no. I. Uh, if my listening and if my research is correct. And, you know, it, there might be an Anton Karras a family member or expert listening who would say something to that effect, you know. I don't know. It's now, of course, a world-famous theme, and most zither players, uh, well-known zither yeah. players, or, you know, concerts certainly in Vienna and with throughout Austria who um, who perform, yeah, this is on their repertoire. Like, it's it's almost an expected tune to play it was a real hit in uh, in america i believe when it was recorded as a single but uh yeah we'll, we'll probably say a little more about that when we discuss the atmosphere but yeah the zither traditional austrian instrument but it's got its uh ancestry 
its ancestry oh, okay. in China with uh, some other stringed instruments. And yeah, so pretty cool stuff. Very interesting. I didn't know that it was native to Austria. That Okay, that makes a little more sense to me then, because I was like... Well, traditional. Yeah, it's okay. a traditional Austrian instrument, but I, I'm sure I'm sure it traditional. has like, sorry, it's sorry, evolved from other places like the stringed instruments have, right? Um, yeah. Who knows where the first came through? And, and and who's to say one culture had to start it with a string? Like, you yeah. know, there could have been two or three or four different indigenous cultures that started playing stringed instruments, and they all figured it out. You know, human brains aren't that different ultimately if you got a string you can play a string instrument in africa and china and siberia you know what i mean absolutely yeah uh i'm just really surprised in a way i mean carol reed definitely had you know uh moxie going ahead and putting this unknown to score the film because you would think alexander corda would be like well why don't we get one of our you know in-house composers like miklas rosa for example to like just to score this film because yeah. we know that, you know, Rosa worked with Corda Films, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm surprised that, you know, they never got someone like that to to score the film. But instead, you know, they went with uh, Carol Reed's uh, prerogative and they took on Anton Karras. And maybe they felt Anton Karras was right in the sense. And yeah, Zither is r- related to, you know, Vienna, to Austria. So it would make sense why they would choose that instrument in the score. Now, whether yeah, or not, you know, yeah. they would choose it for like the only instrument used in the score well, that's debatable, and uh, yeah, we'll get into sure. that later on. Uh, we promise you that. Uh, so as there were two releases for this film in the end, uh, the original British release, uh, which is the one that we saw, has Carol Reed himself doing the voiceover from the beginning, supposedly being the voice of an older Calloway from the future as he does in the novella. Now, the version shown in the U.S., they cut 11 minutes from the film and had Joseph Cotton insert a voiceover instead at the beginning. But mm-hmm. the British version went out in the end. Uh, the film premiered to the world as a, at a as a grand gala world premiere at the Ritz Cinema at Hastings, East Sussex, on September 1st, 1949. It was one of the biggest box office hits of the day, uh, grabbing £270,549 in its run in England. Now, I don't know what that equals today, but I'm pretty sure that's a lot in, in today's money. So that's the end of the fast facts for the third man. I think we've established, you know, uh, the process in which the film was made and what led, you know, up to its release and um, all mm-hmm. the players that were involved, both cast and crew. Yeah. And it's, it is a, a film with a legacy. The American Film Institute, when it released its uh, film, its top 100 films had this at number 57 or something in that vicinity. I don't remember its exact placement, but something in that vicinity. And then when it re-updated its list, 10 years later, it wasn't even listed. So I think it took what well, took the AFI 10 years to accept that maybe this wasn't an American film. I, I don't know what they were doing there, but how you could list one. Yeah, but in the BFI's top 100, this was there um, somewhere like around in the 60s as well. But then um, in the BFI's list of top British films, it was number one. So this is a very celebrated British film. Uh, yes. First and foremost, before I think it's it's a a world, uh, you know, cinema great film, but it's certainly on both lists. Yeah, it's considered kind of like the British film noir uh, in terms of like because you think of you know the 1940 to 1960 period of Hollywood cinema, which is the classical film noir era. Uh, because it deals with a lot of themes that Noir uh, espouses, such as like it's that idea mm-hmm. of like world weary cynicism, uh, untrust mm-hmm. of of the system, and everything like that. It's a very black 
story in that sense, a black yeah. comedy in, in, in many ways, despite also being a thriller. So, and, and also visually, it looks like a noir too. Uh, and there's some shots in there that you can tell that uh, Reed is following Orson Welles. I mean, uh, if you look at Citizen Kane and what Greg Tolan did as a cinematographer for that film, the, that deep focus uh, shot, you know, where you have the foreground, the middle ground and the background all there uh, in, in one in one shot, all that was utilized. All different methods of camera work was utilized artistically mm-hmm. for this mm-hmm. for this movie. Uh, it's almost like a potpourri of everything that every filmmaker has done put into one movie. And I, I and Reed just shoot, he just shoots the shit out of it, you know, and old Vienna. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, well, guys, listen. Just before we get to the review, um, Josh has kindly prepared a plot summary for everybody. If you haven't seen The Third Man, and if it's not already spoiled for you, pause the podcast, go watch it, and then come back and check us out. We're going to get into a uh, a very spoiler heavy summary now, and then we'll get you back on the other side of that for our review. Holly Martins, an American writer of cowboy dime novels of dubious quality, arrives in post-war Vienna. His old school chum Harry Lyme heard about his financial troubles and offered him a job in Vienna, where Lyme has had quite the enterprise going for himself. But when Holly arrives into the bombed-out city via train, he finds no one there to meet him. Tragically, Harry has been killed in a car accident that took place in front of his own apartment building. This Holly learns from Carl, Harry Lyme's porter. Not only that, but Holly is about to miss his own friend's funeral. Deeply dismayed, as anyone would be, Holly arrives at the cemetery just in time to observe the burial. In this one scene, we meet nearly every character in the film, but the identities of those attendees are not yet known to us. There is a young woman there that captures Holly's attention, but she soon departs. The first person there that we meet is Major Calloway of the British Royal Military Police Forces in Vienna. He offers Holly a ride, of which ends up at a beer hall, where Holly has a few and grows surly when he figures out Calloway's profession. He is also not fond of Calloway celebrating Harry's death, not to mention accusing him of being a black marketer. This is when we learn that Holly writes Western novels, of which Calloway is not familiar, but his subordinate, one Sergeant Payne, is very aware of Holly Martin's and is somewhat of a fan. But Holly can't hold his liquor and succumbs to Calloway's subtle provocations. He makes a swing at a Calloway, but Payne puts him down with the right hook and following his major's orders delivers Calloway to the hotel sacker and puts him up for the evening, where he is to be picked up and driven to airport the next day. But Payne's adulation of his favorite dime novelist catches the attention of Mr. Crabbin, a Brighton working for the re-education effort. He asks Holly to speak at the upcoming literacy re-propaganda seminar, offering to give room and board to Holly at the hotel for the next few days. Holly accepts the offer. Then the phone at the front desk rings, and it's for Holly Martins. On the other end is one Baron Kurtz, a close friend of Harry Lyme, and he wants to meet shortly at the Mozart Café. Martins agrees, but before leaving, he suggests to Payne he's going to make his superior Major Calloway suffer under his pen for dare impugning the name of his dear friend Harry Lyme. The crusade has begun. Holly meets with Baron Kurtz. Kurtz professes that he worked in the black market during the war to survive, like most people did. He is also a fan of Holly's work, holding his book The Oklahoma Kid in one hand and a little chihuahua in the other. Harry's demise is the main topic. 
He learns from the Kurtz that Lyme had a lover, an actress, the same woman who Holly spotted at the funeral. He learns that Kurtz and a Romanian friend named Popescu were witnesses to Harry's fatal accident, and that they carried his dying body from the road to the base of a statue located across the street from Harry's apartment. Kurtz escorts Holly to the scene of the accident and gives him the grisly details. Carl the porter is outside sweeping. Holly interviews him briefly, his curiosity peaked when Carl is cut off by his wife telling him that he is wanted on the phone. Before Holly can process this, Kurtz shares the bittersweet revelation that with his final breaths, Harry asked of he and Popescu to look after his girlfriend Anna Schmidt and his dear friend Holly Martins. Holly probes further with Anna, but Kurtz's attempts to dissuade him are of no use and he divulges the information of her location. Holly soon finds himself attending a Viennese operetta starring or more like featuring Anna Schmidt. Having introduced himself during a stage change, he meets Anna in her dressing room after this show. They commiserate over Harry as she changes out of her stage clothes and into her civvies. She is friendly, but has her defenses up. She reveals that Harry was pronounced dead by his own Dr. Winkle, who conveniently or not conveniently was just passing by when things went down and that the inquest revealed that Harry was hit by his own driver. Yes, most likely an accident. Holly absorbs this. She reveals that Harry was pronounced dead by his own Dr. Winkle when coincidentally or not coincidentally, was just passing by when things went down and that inquest revealed that Harry was hit by his own driver. Yes, most definitely an accident. Holly absorbs this information and is perplexed and is disturbed by Anna's caustic comment about it not being an accident. He is obviously enchanted by Anna and wants to learn more. Anna convinces Carl, the porter, to let him into Harry's apartment, and the porter without his wife around lets more go in regard to his testimony. The most intriguing aspect of Carl's story is that there was a third man, not the doctor, whom he saw help carry Harry's battered body off the street, and that Harry was quite dead when it was brought over to the statue. How can a dead man gasp out a last will and testament if his skull is crushed? When Holly tries to get more from him, Carl gets scared, then angry. As they argue, a ball bounces in from the hallway across the threshold of the open door. Carl gives the ball back to the young boy outside while throwing Holly and Anna out of the apartment. The boy watches them as they leave. Only temporarily defeated, Holly walks Anna to her apartment, which is currently being ransacked by Vienna's multi multinational police force. Calloway and Payne are present. Calloway is not convinced by Anna's Austrian passport, nor should he be, as it's been forged, a fact we learn when Anna explains this to Holly. Holly chastises Calloway for bungling the investigation, and Anna asks him to keep away from the love letters they are confiscating and professing that Harry only broke the law to help people every now and then. Anna is taken into custody and Holly promises to get her out of this mess. At the International Police Headquarters, Anna's passport falls under the scrutiny of the Russian liaison. Meanwhile, Holly visits Dr. Winkel. The same breed of dog that Kurtz was pocketing earlier in the day trundles into the room, supposedly Winkel's own dog. The doctor talks about the head injury, says he was still alive when they carried him across the road just before he arrived, but can't confirm whether Harry was alive when he was laid before the statue. Winkle asserts that, of, that his opinion only qualifies to the cause of death, but the important takeaway is that Dr. Winkle confirms there were only two men that carried Harry to the spot where he died, thus contradicting Carl's testimony. Calloway tells Anna that he is keeping the passport for the moment. He asks Anna if she, know, if she knows a Joseph Hobbin. There was a telegram sent to her from Lyme asking her to telephone Hobbin and meet them at the Casanova Club. Calloway reveals that Hobbin, an orderly at the military hospital, has disappeared since last Tuesday evening but Anna doesn't know any of this. She is released, and Holly is waiting outside for her. The two follow the Casanova Club lead. 
They find Barton. They find Baron Kurtz moonlighting as a violinist at the nightclub. Kurtz introduces them to Popescu. Popescu says he was meeting Kurtz and Harry Lyme when he saw the truck hit Lyme, and that it was he and Kurtz who picked him up off who picked him up off the road. Stubborn as an ox, Holly lets Popescu know that the porter tells a different tale. Popescu dances around the issue and offers a subtle threat when Holly brings up the missing Joseph Hobbin. We then get an abrupt cut to Popescu ringing up his colleagues. And we see Dr. Winkle, Baron Kurtz, Popescu, and a third man meeting on a bridge. Cut back to Holly walking past the entrance of Harry's apartment and the porter asking him to come back later tonight to talk. But it's not to be, for as the porter closes the window of his own apartment, it's clear he is facing his murderer. A fact confirmed when Holly and Anna arrive later that evening to find a crowd gathered outside. A body carried out. The porter is dead, and the child that had been playing with his ball? Shouldn't he be in bed? Where are his parents? Remembers the duo and points his finger. The crowd gives chase, but Holly and Anna manage to elude them and split up in their own different ways. When Holly returns to the hotel, he is practically abducted at the front desk, driven roughshod through the city streets all the way to his literacy seminar. The clueless Crabbin doesn't realize that Holly isn't in a particularly literary sort of writer, and Holly is, is put in yet another difficult position. But things get heated when a new questioner, Mr. Popescu, shows up with some subtle threats laced into his Q&A. The seminar breaks up, and seeing Popescu's thugs arrive, Holly makes a run for it, getting nipped by a parrot, or rather a cockatiel, in the process. He manages to elude his pursuers, but just barely. He finds sanctuary at the International Police Headquarters. Here, Calloway gives him the hard facts. Harry Lyme stole penicillin from a military hospital due to demand. However, the material they obtained was also diluted so they could maximize their supply and then sell it to hospitals. Men, women, children were administered this weak penicillin with devastating effects. His friend Harry Lyme is quite the POS. Holly tries to drink this off, but arrives at Anna's apartment with flowers, offering his heart, amongst other things. Anna is aware of Harry's evil doings. He also has a cat that is unreceptive to Holly's drunken attempts and offering him a string to play with. He only likes Harry, apparently. Through it all of this, Holly professes his love for Anna and she meets it with sad tears. He stumbles away from her apartment but stalls when he feels someone is following him. He spots Anna's cat in an alcove across the adjacent plaza, but his inebriated in the middle of the night outbursts on the feline's terrible spycraft triggers a light from a balcony above to go on, and all is revealed. Harry Lyme stands before him, Anna's cat wrapped around his feet. Their eyes meet. Harry gives the ghost of a smile and then runs off. Holly pursues him up until the ghost completely disappears. Calloway and Payne are skeptical of what Holly saw, but an empty public booth in the middle of the plaza is hiding a secret door that leads into the labyrinthine Viennese sewer system. Calloway is no longer skeptical. They exhume Harry Lyme's grave to find not Harry Lyme, but the missing orderly Joseph Hobbin. Meanwhile, the Russian liaison sends a detachment of the international police force to pick up Anna. She's a Czechoslovakian, so back to the Russian sector she goes. Holly gets wind of this when Anna is brought to the HQ. He tells her Harry is alive, and when this is confirmed by Calloway, she is speechless. He offers her a deal to help her find Lyme in exchange for freeing her from her Russian problems, but she refuses. This leaves Holly on his own. He visits Kurtz, who is also with Winkel, and demands a meetup with Harry. The designated meetup is at the Wiener Riesenrad Ferris Wheel. The two take a ride on the wheel. Harry is not concerned with Anna. He is annoyed that Holly went to the police and offers no explanation as to the dark turn his friend has taken other than visible sociopathy and megalomania. And despite some less than subtle threats, he does not kill Holly. Now Holly's worst fears are reality. Holly agrees to betray Harry Lyme in exchange for getting Anna out of Vienna. Payne brings her to the train, ticket and all, but she spots Holly lurking at the station cafe through the window and leaves the car to confront him. 
He tells her that he's going to betray Harry, and she was the price. Anna stays long enough to miss her train and tears up the tickets as she storms out. Holly returns to Calloway and reneges on the deal. But on the way back to the hotel, Calloway brings him to the children's hospital where he can see the vast results of Harry Lyme's works. Broken, Holly agrees to the setup. Aside from the interference of an old balloon man, the operation is nearly a success. Harry arrives at this agreed-upon rendezvous at a cafe, but Anna throws a monkey wrench into the works just before when she arrives to accuse Holly and then warn Harry. Harry runs off and is pursued into the sewer system by police forces. Holly is also on the, on the pursuit and tracks Harry down, but is almost shot by Harry. Sergeant Payne takes the bullet and falls to the ground dead. Calloway is only able to get off one shot and hits Lime, who scampers around the corner. Lime sees a sewer grate above and descends the stairs. His hands fit through the grate, but it's locked. There is no escape. Bleeding, Harry Lime slumps down the spiral staircase to the bottom rung and finds Holly waiting for him. Gun pointed. Payne's gun. Harry nods for Holly to end it. A single gunshot echoes through the tunnel, and a man emerges from the shadowy light of the corridor. We end where we began, at a funeral. Harry's. For real this time. Calloway is driving Holly back to his hotel down the cemetery road where they see Anna walking as she did before. Holly gets out of the jeep and decides to wait at the end of the road for Anna. The shot holds 30 seconds or more, and Anna walks right past him, past the frame. Holly lights a cigarette, but then throws it away in defeat. So, yep, you did a good job there capturing the plot, buddy. So uh, let, let's slide into our review. You want to explain to the good folks at home how we review films here on Bond by Numbers, because while we haven't done a lot of Bond films lately, we, we still have a, a scoring system, don't we? Still That's right, our scoring system uh, where we rate things out of 10 money pennies, three categories. Uh, or Well, three. Uh, we, rate, we rate things out of points, but on Bond by Numbers, if you're not familiar with us, we rate them out of money pennies for obvious reasons. Uh, but we got to think: Is there a secretary type character in in this? In this, I guess you could say pain, pain. pain. Okay, yeah, pain. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess and that's, yeah, that's true. I was gonna say the the guy at the the hotel, the guy who's like, that's right. Yeah. Well, let's let's <laughs> let's do this in pain pennies. Let's go pain pennies, which is fitting oh, because there you go. of Bernard pain Lee, right? Pennies. So that works. Per- so that works. That works yeah. perfectly. Yeah. Uh, so. This time, M is the secretary in this case. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we, we review things out of uh, 10 points. We have three categories. Okay, so we, we, we have three categories that we review out of 10 points, or in this case, pains. Our first category is story. Our second category is acting. And our final category is atmosphere. Story is, is like your narrative, your plotting, the writing overall of the, of the film. And then your acting, well, that's very self-explanatory. And atmosphere deals with, you know, how the movie conjures up the feel, you know, how it uh, reinforces the emotions on the screen, whether it's through camera work, whether it's through uh, editing or score, production design, what have you, uh, what makes you feel the film. So we we, we rate those out of 10 pains in the case of The Third Man. Pain pennies. Pain I'm going pennies. pain pennies. You can go pain pounds, or you can just have pains. It's okay. I don't want pains. pains. I, want yeah. I think. I think the. I, I think the, I feel like I've had. Enough I think pains the editing today. of this podcast will give you. Will give you. Yeah, would it pain. be penicillin <laughs> pains? We we can. Uh, there's no penicillin available for this one. For this. Give pain. Harry Lyme's um, penicillin. But you know what, Double O Chapman, 
Double O Chapman mm. has been has been quiet of late. Uh, I'd like to give him the first hit with this, Josh. Yeah. I think uh, no, I'm not the third. Sure. I, yeah, if that's okay. Uh, one thing I just wanted to say is that I just I just sort of did a conversion of the amount. You said it was two hundred seventy seven thousand is what it made, uh, and that today in, in in pounds, if we're going to go today in pounds, that would be eleven million dollars today. Wow, that's that's pretty big. Uh, how yeah. many pay, how many pain pennies is that? Oh, that's at I'm least five. <laughs> it's a handful. It's a, it's handful. a handful, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. Well, Donald uh, Chapman, tell tell me, please. Yeah. I'm curious, guys. Tell me what you thought of the story of this. The first oh, so the story, uh, I gave it pretty high marks. I gave it eight. I I was quite uh, like I was. It was genuinely uh, intrigued and. Uh, I really, I did, I did enjoy it. I liked it. It was a good noir. And it was a nice little story, and I, it, it definitely uh, grabbed me as a viewer. And uh, I just, uh, I kind of liked the idea of this guy who's kind of down and out, and he's going to see his friend, and then you just sort of see how his kind of his world's kind of turned upside down, and just trying to see, you know, it's just mm. like, whoa, you know, what he's dead. Like it was really interesting when he was uh, obviously there's like a kind of a language barrier, even though the first person he talks to was like a U.S. Uh, like a military policeman. And then when he yeah, actually off the train, gets, yeah, 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 you know, so uh, there wasn't much of a language barrier issue there getting in, but once he goes and, and like uh, goes to the apartment, and then he sees um, the porter, um, and then he obviously, you know, he's trying to talk, and then he's trying to figure out what the guy's saying. He's like, okay, okay, and coughing, <laughs> yeah, leaving, coughing, you know, and then yeah. what? Mm-hmm. That was uh, it was really interesting, and then you just kind of see like, oh, you know, I came here to see my friend, and then what? You know, he's dead, and then I just thought that was that was really neat. So. I kind of like how that kind of got you. It kind of it kind of uh, uh, reeled me that in. That shot of Cotton, um, just his the I guess the the excitement of, of seeing him, what, what what his friend is up to, and then just the shot of his face when he realizes that Harry is dead. Cotton played that so well. Like, yeah, that was just a perfect shot. Uh, he so did. Well. Yeah, exactly. And the way he was emoting, like when he went to you know when he went to the bar and stuff like that, and he's like, ah, oh, you know, he's you know he was really down and out, and uh, you know he misses his friend. Uh, anyway, so going along with the story, I thought it was, I thought, you know, it was really, it was cool. I mean, it was, you know, uh, like a classic sort of noir where you get all these kind of characters and then you can sort of see, you know, are they, is everyone who they say they are? Is, is everything as it seems? Uh, so I thought the story was quite interesting and apparently, you know, um, through what I was explaining through, uh, those two articles, is that the story is actually fairly um, mm-hmm. realistic as to mm-hmm. um, the sort of the, the contemporary at the time, like with the the black market in Austria. So that that's also kind of refreshing. Um, yeah. That yeah. as as captivating as the story is, it's actually fairly factual, even though it's it's almost like a historical fiction, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, How did of, you like it? Sorry to interrupt you, buddy, but I wanted to ask oh, yeah. you as like you know your your military experience and your military know-how and your research and, and, your, and your, and your interest just generally in, in this era of the 20th century, how did you find mm-hmm. it um, in terms of representing accuracy? Like forget the plot points. Like how did you find this, the story generally like um, Graham Greene's, like, the character writing, like did you find these characters believable in their situations or were there any that were a little too stagey, too hammy? What did you think? Well, I think I think yeah, cuz I think there's a lot of archetypes like they all like they kind of make everyone like a villain up until the point which I understand because it's just trying to get the audience to it's just sort of throwing like red herrings here and there, right? So you just never know. Uh I mean for 
I mean, the espionage aspect of it, there isn't a ton. It's more, it's more sort of like, um, it's more sort of like almost like mobs as much as it is, uh, like, like organized crime than it is espionage, I guess. But obviously we know that, you know, uh, the mob also does clandestine stuff. And so obviously there, you know, uh, there's tradecraft and everything and, and human intelligence and, and, and how all, and how all that works. Right. So, I mean, that seems realistic. And again, I'll be honest, I, I really don't know much about, uh, like, I, I want to say very post-war Europe, but it is very interesting, and it's something I think I want to research more because it, it, it's very much like a like a smoldering fire. Like it's still got the embers burning, you know. Because obviously, um, the, and what the one thing that I found very interesting and I did not know is that how Austria was split up, and this is true, into like almost four sections. You know, you have. Um, the the German American sorry, uh, Russian American uh, British and uh, French f- French yeah correct yeah. that was the four yeah and uh, and all, and clearly they're all working together and it was interesting how wherever they would go they would all four of them would go so then you know but at the same time you know that they're also actively <laughs> surveilling each other. And so, and just sort of, and and it's interesting how, then you see Anna, how the Russians want to bring her back to the Russian Russian part of the city, because technically Mm -hmm. she's, she, she's a Czechoslovakian national, you know? So it's, it's, it's very, so I thought that was all very interesting. And it's something that I I personally want to research a little more, Uh, but apparently, yeah, it was a hotbed for intelligence and and kind of going forward. So I, on a, on a military or intelligence standpoint, it, it definitely uh, kind of made me want to research it more. So uh, I'm going to say the story is eight for me because one, I was enthralled just as a viewer. Two, the uh, if if we're going to say the the espionage and intelligence aspect was seemed pretty believable to me, and um, it was a, a, a well I'll say a well weaved story. I, I I gave it fairly high marks at okay. an eight. In regard, I mean, Jeff. well, I was going to ask Jeff, like, so, I mean, the rating is out of 10. Mm-hmm. So what do you think this movie lacked yes. in terms of story? Is it because of the of, of the archetypes that you mentioned? Some of the characters you found were, were a little thin? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. And, and again, I take it with a grain of salt um, because, I, you know, you have some of those hammy characters, like uh, – um, and uh, but overall, I th- I, I like the story. Like it, it's it, it makes sense. Like it's uh, one I really did enjoy uh, Orson Welles, and I liked the sort of the idea of his character. Um, and uh, and it was funny how uh, how you know with him and he was friends with Holly, but you could tell that is he really a friend? And that's why I thought like they kind of wrote him interesting, like where he's going to visit his friend. But then when you when they actually talk to each other, there's quite I mean, I think it's just because um, uh, Harry is always looking out for number one. So is he really a friend? Mm -hmm. But I like how they wrote that. It's anyways, I, I thought they wrote that well for sort of their friendship slash. Not. Yeah. Friendship. Well, I always got the I always got the feeling that, you know, because they said there are school chums, right? And I, I, yeah, there are school chums, I exactly. I was feeling that, like, 
because he talks about that whole story about how like he would get crib notes and stuff like that for everybody. So it seemed like right. Harry was a bit of the bad boy in school. And yeah. And he always and, like, whereas yeah. Holly was, was right. probably, you know, probably kind of like, I don't want to say the word loser, but he was probably like a more of an introverted type in that, in that clique. And I guess he probably just like hung mm. on to Harry as if you if, and idolized him. You know what I mean? And he couldn't really see what well, Harry I don't know was. About that. I don't know about that because I, I got to pick a point with that with that supposition sure. simply because he mentions that Harry stole his girl at one oh, point. Oh, that's right. And that's right. Yes. He doesn't yes, seem yes. That's right. doesn't seem to be a you know that type of guy to me. But maybe maybe when they were younger yeah. schoolmates or something. Yeah. Well, it almost sounds like Harry was like um, not a cool kid. I'm oh, sorry. That Holly was not the cool kid. Harry was, and he kind of followed him around, and then Harry kind of took advantage of him, which it clearly seems like it's yeah, he's that yeah. kind of person he's trying to do again. And, yeah. and maybe you know? Holly feels uh, that you know offering him this job in Vienna is, is Harry's way of making it up to him or something like that, right? And he hmm, so yeah, and, and of yeah. course uh, we know Wait, is I don't it know though? it's hard. It, or is it trying well, to find get a fall guy yeah. involved? Well, in that's right. Games? Like, I'm but I'm talking sure. about. I'm not saying that's the case. And, and, what I'm saying yeah. is, is that that's probably what Holly perceives. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. Oh right. But yes. I do okay. agree with you. Yeah. yeah that is yeah. probably okay. exactly what is happening uh, in regard. Yeah. Well, and, why don't you, why don't you say and, Josh then how you feel about yeah. it? Because I yeah. Went to that, yeah. We're not, so yeah. Um, okay, I might be in the minority in regard to this rating, but uh, I gave this story uh, a high rating. Um, I found that characters drive this story, and despite being threaded through the maze of a bombed-out post-war Vienna, uh, they push the plot along despite of how convoluted things may seem on the surface. Uh, for the majority of the picture, it's taut, it's suspenseful, and chaotic, and yet it still feels realistic. Uh, the verisimilitude that the camera work and lighting brings to the story, I think, is remarkable, uh, it's just how they use on-location shooting it helps with that immense with how helps yeah. with that, and Green and Reed working in tandem on the script. You know they bring it to life, and and they have an excellent cast reinforcing that. On and one can see why this is considered a classic thriller. Um, there are beats of Hitchcock's early days in terms of suspense, and we can see the influence of Wells' yeah. past efforts as well stylistically, and you get that cynical noir feel mm. that I was talking about. Um, because we start with Holly dragged to Vienna. He reacts to Harry's death. He wants to avenge his friend's name. And then he uncovers a conspiracy that keeps unfolding and pushing the action forward. And, you know, and it's also, you can look at it on the basis of a film, The Wire, on how Holly is like, almost like Marlowe. You know, he's that Chandlerian hero, the Yank private dick, but he's in a fish out of water story instead, navigating the maze. That's the story that is Vienna, Rife, you know, with police gangsters mm-hmm. and black marketers, yeah. uh, and, he's, and he's in over his head, and it, like, like as if he's trying to be one of the heroes in his westerns that he writes. And in terms of pacing, I find it very consistent, and with few, ex- with one or two exceptions, there's not really an unnecessary sequence in the film. Everyone bounces back and forth like a like, like a pool ball through the film, and. You know, you can argue that the Crabbin storyline doesn't add too much to the story, except for some satire about, you know, writer's craft and and literary theory and whatnot and pretension and pretension. Yeah. Uh, it's pretension. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but it's still a funny sequence, no matter what. And and that kind of fits the black comedy aspect that I think Reed was trying. Reed and Green were trying to, to put in there, which they're good at doing in many cases, which gives it kind of a very kind of British Ealing Studios, you know, kind of feel. You know what I mean? Like it's it has that British dryness to it that stands out from like 
typical American Hollywood stories. I, I, I guess I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but that's kind of how I felt about the style anyway. Cool. Uh, yeah, and I sense. also wondered, do we really need that other scene of Holly uh, needing to be convinced by Calloway to betray Lyme by taking him to the children's ward? Now, that's a heavy subject to deal yeah. with. It, it's a very heavy yeah. subject. Okay. Uh, yeah. And it feels strange that Calloway didn't play this card first. But then again, you know, Harry was right. was believed to be dead when Calloway first told him about Harry Lyme's activities. So I guess that kind of makes sense. But I just found that, like, they could have padded that out better or, sorry, unpadded because and, and, and that could have maybe made things tighter. And maybe that was the 11 minutes that was cut from the American version. I don't know. Um but I just found things could have been reeled in tighter uh, between the train station scene and then the cafe scene, which leads to the sewer chase. Um, that's kind of how I felt about it in terms of like the overall writing of a plot. Um, I do love how the writing has Holly suddenly fall for Anna. You know that he wants to vindicate his friend, but he can't help falling in love with his girl. When he confesses his love to her, you know, she breaks down and cries. Then we have the Harry Lyme is alive reveal right afterwards. And yet, uh, he makes the deal to betray Harry because he loves Anna. And ironically, his love for her is what betrays Harry Lyme outside, you know, his own morality. And that's what makes him dead to her. And, you know, at the, and, and there he is at the end of the movie, that hopeless romantic, the typical American detective protagonist yeah. waiting for the girl outside of the courthouse or vice versa. But here at the, at the cemetery, she just walks right on by, leaving him with nothing but his frustrations right and a dead friend. And, you know, I don't know, I just found that worked so well in the overall theme of the movie. I just found in terms of, like, uh, narrative and thematic storytelling, uh, this film excelled on all levels. Uh, and uh, mm. But with one or two exceptions in terms of the writing, how it could have been condensed for me, um, I give the story 9 out of 10. Okay. That's a, that's a good score. Can I start my little mm. bit on story just by acknowledging something that I think the third man... In fact, I, I mean, I think we do a really good job of selecting films for three non-Bond season every year on Bond by Numbers. But I think this was an excellent selection of film. Um, mm. I wouldn't have thought of it myself, uh, but I, I really enjoyed studying it and watching it for the purposes of this because I think there are a lot of Bond connections because uh, often Bond finds himself in situations like Harry or like um, yeah, Harry. You're right. Like... like um, uh, like Polly, Molly, Holly, Holly. What's the fucking Holly. name? Holly, Jolly, wow. holy shit. Where's the eggnog? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Whew. I, so I think, you know, I credit you there, buddy, because this was a good choice and it was a great film to, mm. to kind of study. Um, but I'm going to disagree with both of you on the story of this film. Uh, I gave it a low mark. Wow. I couldn't get past okay. a six. I couldn't get past a six with this one. And I'm going to try to explain it. I'm not, I'm not doing this to be contentious or to be anything other than just how I read the story and how I, how I engaged with it. But um, I'll just kind of talk you through what I think. It won't take me long because, my, my, you know, mm -hmm. it is what it is. But there's not, first of all, there's not a lot of mystery to this story. Like, we know pretty quickly that Harry Lyme faked his own death just from how hushed his pals seem to be. Like, once they start right. talking, like, the camera angles, the close-ups, the suspicion. Like, I don't think the law enforcement agents are given the same sort of canted angles, the Dutch angles, as Josh says, as all of Harry's pals. Harry's pals are clearly, clearly bad mm -hmm. news, mm -hmm. okay? Like, 
as, as the story as the story gets on and by the time we reach the big reveal which is 58 minutes into the film the mystery of harry faking his own death that's done and it then becomes a cat and a mouse game right it becomes a cat and a mouse game in this political soup bowl now i don't have See, I, I knew I knew Homer wasn't going to agree with this, but hey, tell Homer yeah, he's got to exactly. he got to he's got to deal with this because this is it's my turn. Homer, you get your try I'm in a minute, to. buddy. <laughs> you get your try in a minute. Um, anyway, like at this point, it just becomes a a cat and a mouse game. Now, I don't have a problem with that because we don't need to be confused as an audience to appreciate a good mystery film. You just don't. You can you can follow the characters like we do in a lot of Hitchcock films where we know. We're just waiting to see what happens. That's fine with me. I'm happy. But the question for me became, how invested am I to watch this play out to an inevitable conclusion where Harry gets caught? Like, is the story engaging enough? Is the supporting cast interesting enough? Do we care enough about Holly Martin's agenda of moral goodness? And the answer is yes to these things. But for me, only just. Like, I, I guess part of my issue is with the tension in the film. Like, I mentioned political soup, right? That That's kind of what we're in here. But the stakes are not raised. Like, instead of it being a pressure cooker where we've got the British, the French, the Americans, the Russians, all kind of vying for this area and, like, trading secrets and working underground, there is none of that political tension for me. So, essentially, what you're doing is you're, you're stirring up all these political ingredients in a soup bowl, but it's not hot. It's not, it's not under a pressure cooker. Like I say, you just... You're dropping holly into this environment but none of the law enforcement to me feel threatening the tension is not ratcheted no, by, right. by setting the film in this place and to me it's just fake backdrop like graham green is creating something that he wants me to believe is tense russia france britain america but they don't fucking have anything really to do holly martins can go home whenever he wants and that's there's no risk to his life there. It's his own curiosity that puts him into trouble, not anything yeah, beyond yeah, that. True. So now, now having said that though, like, like, how much do we care about Harry and Holly? My answer is meh, like a little bit. I guess if the tension felt more real politically, and I got a clear sense of them on tight ropes in every lane, in every cafe of Vienna, then I'd be much more invested in it. Like you mentioned, Jeff, that the setup is for it to be a hotbed of intelligence. And you're absolutely right, because we've got these four nations post-war trading intelligence, trying to collect secrets. But that hotbed isn't heated up in the film. And because of that, like I feel like we're meant to care, but I, 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 it's not delivered in a, in a way that makes me care. So I, 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 like, I like the movie. Like It's a definite pass for me particularly stylistically but it's not a perfect thriller or even even like a totally engaging movie for me i was legitimately bored in places and i'm a guy that loves joseph cotton but in spite of its style and performances i, I you know the story didn't do much for me it succeeds in capturing i guess the, the, the pessimism of a world just three years out of a massive conflict right like where relationships are broken friendships erode and you get the crumbling brick as a symbol for that and all this okay i get that right crooks are doing what crooks can in this new who knows what world and when we learn of harry's racket we then know what kind of job it was he was offering holly which takes away another element of mystery i know that the setting i i know what their conversation is going to be on the wheel when they get in there it's just going to be a reunion and a disappointment because the guy's changed that's what it's going to be like i know that before they step into the the little cabin on the wheel and 
it's also not explained to me why Holly is broke. This guy is a well-known writer internationally. He's a dime novelist, he's broke, though. and he has to go to... Yeah, but that like, doesn't matter. Like, the whole sequence at Kraven's like, meeting is to show how he's knowing that he's not considered, he's not taken seriously by them whatsoever. Like, it's basically tra- trashing the genre. Yeah. And the fact that the movie focuses on Payne being a fan of his work, who is portrayed as being someone very low class and stuff, indicates that he is not a well-known writer. So I can see a dime novelist like, see, like I, him. I think that's interesting. I think I think that's interesting because I think the one thing this film does hold up is the common man. I think it satirizes all of the big figures apart from yeah. Callahan. I think it I think it satirizes everybody except for the big guy, uh, the, the, the the kind of the bottom dwellers, you know, the pains of the world. I think he comes out of the film looking. Quite oh, he intelligent, does. I'm not actually. saying he's not so, intelligent. Yeah, he he likes. I'm the just story. saying is that he's probably not well read. You can be intelligent and not be well read. You know what I mean? That's what I'm trying to say. Is that because because because. Uh, Holly writes dime novels. You know, he writes cowboy novels. He does. He does. They ask. Yeah, him, but Crabbin, Crabbin, Crabbin asks him to speak. He asks him to do the lecture. Crabbin asks yeah. him. What Crabbin is it, asks the, him uh... to speak because he seems like he's a, he just wants to get someone who's a known quantity of some. Because yeah, the only reason because he had no idea who he was, Crabbin right? To him, and Crabbin's like, "Oh, great, we have another guest speaker that I need mm. to do for my show." I've even Crabbin looks surprised and shocked yeah. and almost disgusted at the at the fact that. This guy Holly this guy Holly Martins is actually like this guy's nothing. You know, like this guy is is actually Yeah. Is, he's not well read. Yeah, he, he doesn't, doesn't have know any anything. influences yeah. or Listen, anything like that. Like yeah. I, again I can see I, why I'm he, taking up I'm taking up your, your issues yeah. with that. I, I gotta take up issues with that because the reason the reason Holly Martins has got nothing in that talk is because he knows he's being pursued on three different angles. Like that's probably one of the only moments a hotbed tension that Holly's under in the whole film. So of course his speech on the crisis of faith in the modern novel is going to be shit. He's got different fucking authorities yeah. cramming down on him. Like he can't answer the questions about James Joyce. He can't answer these questions, these literary questions, because his fucking attention is split in three different directions. That's like that's why his I mean, talk is shit. It's not because he's a dime novelist. It's because he he can't fucking concentrate. That's, at that's it. The, and yeah, so Crabbin's got his hands in his head. You that's know? a like, fair assessment. I get that. That's a hands. fair assessment. But but anyway. I think the fact that because if you knowing if you knowing about like I I think that even the fact that like Howard what's his name um, Calloway looks down on him being a novelist as, as well at the beginning. So I'm just saying is that to me. And I'm not lying or anything. I'm not trying to disagree with you, but I bought that that like Holly mm-hmm. Martin's was probably not a great writer when he got here. That, that's okay. all I'm saying. And okay. and Fair I enough. can see why he wanted to get you know why he and so he came here so that he can get a job from Harry, and then he finds out his friend is dead, and he wants to vindicate his friend's mm-hmm. relationship. And that was kind of what drove that. That's what drove him towards the investigation, and then he starts going down a path which which leads him to like very kind of precarious situations. I mean, obviously this guy Popescu, he's like some mafioso rack gangster that that uh that um what's his name uh that Harry Harry was working with. And that guy, he definitely has some muscle when he calls up and and arranges, you know, with uh Kurtz and uh uh Winkle. Right. You know, okay, okay. Just just let me finish yeah, my bits before so, you go into Popescu and yeah, the other plots absolutely. because I'm I'm not quite finished my okay. point here. Like the other thing, the other thing I take I take uh, a little bit of issue with is the fact that Graham Greene himself describes this screenplay as a comedy thriller. Like I really don't get that. I feel like I feel like the romance or the would be connection comedy? between Holly and Anna was flat, like really flat. It is. It comes out of nowhere, and yeah. it might have like a retribution angle to it because we had that little soundbite about how you took my girl before. But the truth is, I did not at all buy 
the love between those two characters. It was just like shoveled in there. And I didn't even think it added to anything. I'll get to that when we get to the performances. But like, uh, like Bernard Lee conveyed more of subtle comedy than anybody else in this film. Like that character yeah. of pain, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I, I just, Holly didn't, I didn't Martin's get this. Is, I didn't is, get the subtle yes, humor. Yes, Holly Martin's was the straight man in this story, right? He wasn't the one. It was, the, it was, it was. Yeah, but who was the funny well, one? Was, you tell me. I, I, I think you're confusing. I think you're confusing like slapstick humor with like sl- with like more like dark humor about the situation. You know, L- like no, this I'm is not, something I, like the. That, like, that, that, I'm not. I'm not yeah. confusing slapstick with subtlety, man. I know the fucking difference. Okay, it just sounded like, there. I, feel, that I felt like there was no humor in this film. Well. Last year, Josh, you recommended Charade, which was a knockout film. Charade is a comedy thriller. This is not a comedy thriller by British or American standards. I disagree with with Graham Greene's depiction of it that way. I don't even think it's a thriller because there's no... To me, me it's an interesting story, but it lacks the tension that you need for your protagonist. It, it, It lacks the... Okay, if you want to, if you want to take a a comparison to like North by Northwest, yeah. okay, that's a tense movie. This movie lacks all of that tension. To me, I know it's a cat and a mouse game, and it's just whether or not Holly is going to hang around long enough to see Harry get yeah. caught. That's all it is, because he can get on a boat or an airplane and go home the, the next day. Um, you know. What's but he doesn't face? want Kerry to go Grant's home the next day. He wants to that. find out what, why his friend is. That's the reason he stays because okay, his, his friend, fine. right? So and then, then he's dealing with like. It. But you've got to sell me. You've got to sell me on why he fucking wants to stay. And the film doesn't do that. The story doesn't get Joseph Cotton's character really into needing to see Harry, really needing to figure it all out. If it did for you, awesome. It did Fair. not for me. So I'm not fail. I'm not failing the movie. I'm giving it a six, but. The story was, it just, it failed on its political fronts to be a pot boiler, like a really hot boiler. You know what I mean? And I think, I think if the, if the political intrigue between the four nations were, was more of an important backdrop, actually, actually firing up like a little flame underneath Holly, that's fine. But he was just a, a goofy guy walking around looking for that his was pal the intention. In the second half of the film. That was the intention. He's a blender. Yeah, but he wasn't, a, he wasn't a goofy guy who got... Yeah. Yeah, but he wasn't a goofy guy who got in real hot water. He was a goofy guy who could eject himself from the situation at any moment. You're not yeah. watching a you're not watching a guy who needs to be there and for that reason or is stuck there and for that reason it's like well, we'll just go along with it, I guess. Like I'm just saying see, see like I said it's an, an inevitable conclusion. When's Harry going to get caught? I know he faked his death by 58 minutes in. When's he going to get yeah. caught? And that to me is not tension. That's like observance and so i'm observing it and i'm enjoying it because stylistically it's stunning in a lot of ways the story is not the key feature of this movie for me personally but we'll we'll see i mean that we'll see let's move on to acting i think we've had a good chat here uh we disagree with each other but that's great jeff chapman Mm -hmm. talk to us about the acting in your mind otherwise we're not going to get through this program (laughs) uh well i'm gonna give it about a seven and a half eight i'm gonna say seven and a half i i definitely enjoyed the acting uh i this is i think my first um time seeing joseph cotton uh and um i liked him uh, i i liked him uh, as the character holly martins uh he's kind of a believable character like he he wasn't uh i don't know he just seemed kind of like a humdrum guy who, who looked like he, yeah, he was a, like a, you know, uh, 
a dime a dime novelist and uh you know he's hard up on his luck and he's you almost kind of feel bad for him and he's trying to be a detective he's trying to be like uh uh you know like a sam spade and it's he's doing the best he can he's just he seems like he's a good guy and he's kind of down on his luck um so i could believe that um and I did like the the smaller characters, and you know, I mean, you know, their archetypes and and those kind of um, everyone kind of had, you know, it's like who these people like are they are they who they say they are like what's their you know what's their their modus operandi all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I and you're right, you know, thinking back, like I I I don't feel that Holly and Anna had very much chemistry at all. Um, so, I mean, it's not like I liked the, their acting. I thought, I thought um, Alita was, is a good actress clearly, but they didn't really have much chemistry. I did. I did enjoy the, the, the smaller characters. Like I did, I did enjoy, um, oh my goodness. Uh, uh, Ernst Deutsch, Baron Kurtz. I liked him and uh, I, I liked, uh, uh, yeah. And um, the um, Papescu. Yeah, I liked him too. He is interesting. He kind of reminded me of like a roly poly, and uh, and sort of ominous Peter Sellers. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> That's what That's cool. you know what I mean. I'm like it's Peter yeah, Sellers as yeah, like a yeah. as some kind of mobster. Siegfried Brewer is the actor's <laughs> name. Siegfried Brewer. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was solid. Yeah, he yeah. was menacing too. Like he had that like avuncular feel, but he was menacing at the same time, which is. He he was the yeah he was the one that I was as much as obviously um, Orson Welles as as Harry commanded every scene he was well maybe not every scene but I mean obviously you know it is what it is with him and I, I was absolutely like I was really I I loved Orson Welles as Harry Lyme's character I mean Harry Lyme is a yeah piece of shit uh, but. The whole scene in the um, the Ferris wheel, I loved, and obviously the cuckoo clock thing, all yeah. that, that whole speech. And that's good. That's I loved a good it. Moment. Yeah, that's a good moment. That's yeah, fantastic. That's really good, um, yeah. good writing there on Green. But part. the but the act, and I, I I enjoyed Bernard Lee as sort of a Cockney, uh, you know, sergeant. <laughs> um, and and he, he just seemed like a real person. Like he just seemed like you know he's a guy. He's post war. He's stationed there. He's just kind of going through the motions, you know, just seeing him sitting there reading the paper, just doing his thing. It's kind of just being like, uh, like an assistant, you know, just helping people around with their bags. Like it's just, uh, you know, he was like, I feel like he was, it was a very kind of realistic soldier in, mm-hmm. in, in a post-war um, setting. So I, I, I did like yeah. Bernard Lee as that. His death was the um, tragedy of the film. I like <laughs> Well, it, exactly. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. Well, it and, is, Josh. Um, yeah, you're right. Like it, it kind of is the only tragedy in the film because you don't care if Harry dies it is. at the end. You're right. And Bernard Lee gets that. He gets focus from the camera. He gets focus from the actors. The director clearly wants to make it a moment. So you might be onto something. And the fact that, like, uh, and the fact too is that, like, he's also one of Holly's biggest fans. And it's, uh, and you know, as soon as he dies, yeah. uh, Holly takes his gun. And that's the gun that he kills Harry with. So yeah, he, it's like Holly almost exactly. avenges uh, pain at the end. Yeah. Kind of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I, I, I enjoyed Trevor yes. Howard as Major Calloway. Like, I, I really liked him uh, as the, uh, you know, uh, intelligence officer there and uh, sort of playing like, you know, a spy slash intelligence officer slash, um, slash uh, you know, 
army officer and uh i i i i did enjoy him and i and i felt it kind of realistic just sort of on on how he was portraying his character and and how he's sort of you can tell that he is uh he is used to he's been there for a while so he has a good sort of lay of the land and he knows how to play people and he knows he knows uh cuz obviously this is a this whole sort of world of of uh post-war uh Vienna and and sort of the just the political makeup he's very obviously because of his position but he's very comfortable and he's very used to that now and I I did like it he was very confident and uh in his character so I I did I I liked him um so yeah I I think I'm repeating myself but I said that I'm giving the acting about a seven which show it's a pass and I did actually downgrade it I had it about eight and a half but I would say the acting it was good I didn't f- see a lot of chemistry in a lot of Did you say seven it, or seven I, and a half? Because when you started, sorry, you I'm, I'm going with it I'm, to seven and a half. Sorry, so uh, I yeah, seven. sorry. So I'm going to say the so I, I'm I'm saying seven. Okay. Okay. Cool. And so that's that's where I'm going with that. All right, Joshua. Uh, well, in regards to acting, um, you know, not every performance from this cast was Oscar worthy, obviously. Uh, but no. all of them were solid in my opinion. And I found even like the little people, uh, involved like Carl, the Porter, uh, the actors for Kurtz and, mm-hmm. and Winkle, Winkle, uh, I, uh, yeah, Winkle, <laughs> like, doesn't like being called Winkle. Um, and I love the, qu- the quiet menace of Pikachu, uh, the peevishness of Crabbin and mm-hmm. the ox like, but affable Bernard Lee yeah. Payne, you know, like I loved all those performances despite, you know, not them. They're <laughs> solid, you know, they were really good. But um, I base my grade on this category, uh, not on on the performances of the main of the main cast here. And just starting from the bottom of the main cast, uh, we have Trevor Howard. He comes off as arrogant, but we realize that he knows Vienna. Mm. He knows its people. Uh, he's tolerant yeah, of Holly's side exactly. quest, and he's ready to take Holly in as soon as Holly comes to that realization himself. And he is a professional, uh, and he's somewhat curt, but. Trevor Howard gives you that slight indication that he is sympathetic to uh, to Holly and, of course, to Anna's plate. And you can feel the sorrow, just a tinge, you know, when pain is yeah. killed. There's a little bit of uh, in his voice, like saying, don't let uh, take her shot when you, when you have in Martins, you know, like he's very I don't know. I just found that uh, all the way through uh, Cal- uh, Howard was consistent as Calloway. And I found him like a living, breathing character. So I, I thought he was flawless. Uh, I think he might be like maybe my MVP for the uh, for the film, surprisingly. But um, I thought he was he was he was he, he was yeah, great. I want to see more of his stuff. I'll, let's just say that um, I found Cotton. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, I thought he was subtly brilliant uh, in, in this film. Uh, he can give an emotion with a flicker of an eye or a constricting of his facial muscles. Mm-hmm. Uh, he carries Holly's arc mm-hmm. on his shoulders from beginning to end. His loyalty to Harry, uh, his anger at Calloway, and his crusade the seething anger towards the resurrected Harry and the little signs of him falling in love for Anna, despite it being absolutely pointless because she is only even with him because he's a friend of Harry. She's sympathetic to him, but he's not seeing it. And that's why to me, there's no chemistry between them because Anna is not reciprocating in any fashion on the other end. She's just sad that her lover is dead Mm. and she's, you know, and she welcomes uh, Holly, but she does you, you, you know, like she's not even really even considering being with him. And 
he comes off as a blundering American trying to be a detective hero or a Western hero more than anything. And he's a fool, but he's a noble fool. And I was invested in his character. Yeah. So I thought Cotton was great. Uh, as for Wells, mm-hmm. his presence is felt throughout the film as Harry Lyme. And we don't really see him until the last third of the film. You know, it reminds me, Jeff, of, you yeah. know, like on the Netflix uh, Daredevil series, how you hear the voice of, <laughs> of, of uh, you, hear the, you hear the voice of Vincent D'Onofrio as Wilson Fisk in the first episode, but you don't really meet him until the fourth right. episode. But by that point, he's built up so well that, you know, like he just takes over completely. Yeah. Right. Um, That's but, a good point. But yeah. anyways, when we do meet Harry Lyme, uh, you know, with that baby face and the mischievous smile, I, Wells just kills it. Uh, he portrays immense confidence and yeah. utter villainy in the Ferris wheel sequence that you talked about. He talks at the death of thousands of mm-hmm. people below as if they were nothing with this casual business manner yeah, and with a seductive affability that draws you in and repels you at the same time. You know, you kind of want more of him, uh, but you also understand how he needs to go down. And going with what Scott was saying earlier, uh, maybe if Lyme was, uh, if Wells's Lyme was more, was a more omnipresent in terms of, Actually, you know, earlier on, it's, you know, he's tightening a web around uh, Holly or setting him up for something and Holly has to fight his way out. I can see how that would have probably been a more exciting scenario uh, in, in that sense. But I still do. I still uh, in no way, you know, have have any issue with how things were done in ter- terms of the plotting anyways. Um, uh, now, once, of course, uh Wells' is, um, Lyme is betrayed and cornered in the sewer. You know, that arrogance he so well conveyed, it transforms into desperation. And you can see that in his face. He shows you the fear pulsating through him, as well as that resonation and acceptance of his death. You know, when he pleads with just a, a look of his eyes at Holly to put him out of his misery. Uh, so I, I thought Wells, you know, was uh, firing on all cylinders here. Uh I also mm-hmm. give Holly Marks to Alita Valley. I found that she concocts this very sympathetic creature at first, one that we and Holly are both intrigued and are, are intrigued by. And I admire her strength and her willingness to vindicate Harry. But then gradually, you know, we realize that she is so tied to her memory of Harry that she forsakes her own morality and her own happiness because of her loyalty to the man who was kind to her. And Valley carries this beautifully to the bitter end, in my opinion. You get that rear smile, appeal of laughter. Uh, appeal of laughter. It just kind of lights up the scene. But then, but she can. But but then, but even though you know you agree with Holly about Harry, she destroys any uh, you know any any protestation of him doing the right thing, as he tells her with this withering stare that makes us kind of question that morality a little bit, even though we agree with Holly. And you just kind of end. I just felt that like she did that very well at the same time though, in terms of like, as a character, I was repulsed by how she ended up by the end of the story. And no doubt you can feel that shiver as she walks by Holly at the end of the film. I I thought she was great. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she had any chemistry with Joseph Cotton as in a romantic angle whatsoever. I think that, that, that Reed's intention was to, and, and Green's intention was to sell this as a romantic on the surface as a romance on the surface, but really what we, what's revealed by the end is that it, it's not a romance. It's, it's, it's cotton. It's Joseph cotton's it's um, Holly's own delusions, uh, you know, be- own delusional belief in that, that this is something romantic when in fact it's not. And the reveal that Anna doesn't even care that Harry Lyme, you know, killed children. 
you just know that like yeah. there's they're on completely different planes of existence you know what i mean so i gave acting uh nine out of ten <laughs> i didn't go full marks that's a two, I, nice, I didn't go full nice. marks yeah, nice i didn't one. go full of the full marks because right. uh i would have preferred a little bit of chemistry between cotton and and yeah. uh, and valley uh even though like it wasn't supposed to be romantic i kind of wanted to felt a tinge of like Maybe it's a tinge of Valley kind of reciprocating the romance by by somehow giving them rejection yeah. signals, but sympathy. And there were times and where there was, as but there wasn't enough, in my opinion. So I felt like that Cotton. Yeah, and, well, that's that's a direction yeah. point. That's a direction point. I think like so. that. That's Graham Greene and Carol Reed not wanting to do that for some reason. And um, I, I wouldn't like bash. Uh, Alita Valley for whatever you want, or you know, like Celebrator for whatever. But that's a story yeah. problem. That's a direction yes. problem. They didn't want to tease that out, and they should have because if you're going to put it in there, yeah. even on the surface level, you could easily have planted like you know a gesture here or a softening there. But there was nothing. She, there's just nothing there. No, it's a disappointing part of the film for for all of us. It seems like that would be mm -hmm. romance like it wasn't convincing and it makes it just like you said josh it just turns it out to be like holly's delusions or holly's horniness that's really all it is like the entitled american who yeah. thinks he's going to come over and get the girl like that that's unfortunate because the film is better than that yeah it, it seems like they were going One beyond of, that but that's kind of how it, it, it it's it's perceived i think by by some people is that yeah. It's how, it's how it kind of feels, you know, in the end, even though I know that's not what they're going for. I can see how many people would interpret it that way. One of the, my favorite lines by um, Alita Valley um, was when she's like, you know, um, Harry said that I, I, I laughed. I oh, sorry. Now I'm going to mess it up. But I think she said he, uh, he said I laughed too much. Yeah. Something like that. Or I laughed mm -hmm. a lot. And it's like, you never see her laugh. And she kind of had that, like, that kind of like, smirk like yeah and she's so miserable through the whole thing so i just i i really enjoyed that little that little nugget there and I the acknowledgement was, yeah, yeah the self the self -defacing. just showing like what she was like before this how she was a different person or or maybe she brought something out mm -hmm. or, or harry brought something out in her that we don't see which adds a little bit of, uh you know one thing i i which will I say to give nice. some defense to anna's character is that she's also grieving a person who was very kind to her and part of her life. She is. And yes. so she could possibly be in mm -hmm. denial also. about Harry, of what Harry is in real life versus how she knows him. So no matter what, like she's yeah. still not going to take Holly betraying Harry uh, in a good, in a good way. You know what I mean? Uh, but now it makes sense how, or does it make sense? I don't know. We know in the original novella that, green has them walk away together in the end like he catches up to her and they link and she and she reluctantly gives the arm to him and they walk away it's supposedly into you know into, in, yeah, into the well, sunset that would have sunk the film <laughs> that would have sunk the film because yes. if they had done yes. that yeah. without without building the love story fuck right yeah off. i wouldn't have been the least bit interested. yeah i, I yeah, think he needed no to cold way. shoulder him at the end i of think the reed knew that 100 percent. yeah it's like fuck off fuck yeah. off selznick okay <laughs> Yeah, fuck off, Selznick yeah. is right. So, Josh, you're a nine for your acting. Jeff was a seven. Uh, I'm with Jeff. Mm -hmm. I'm at a seven for my act, for my acting score. Um, now, I was kind of excited about this one because since watching it in that quick, fleeting way I did back at university, uh, I've really liked Joe Cotton. I've grown to like Joseph Cotton in several movies. Um, I think he's 
okay in this movie, but I don't think he delivers anywhere near his best performance. Like if you think of him um, as Eugene in The Magnificent Ambersons or Charles Oakley in Shadow of a Doubt, um, Ingrid Bergman, right? He started against he started uh, opposite her in uh, yeah, Gaslight uh, in Gaslight as uh, as Brian Cameron. Like each of those. I think are more compelling than what we get here. He's he's a bit oafish here. I think it's the way he's written as well. I just didn't like it. Yeah, like, it he's good, but he's not great. He doesn't convey tension as well as I'd like him to. His concern, I don't. I think apart from one or two scenes, I barely can imagine sweat brewing on his brow. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? Like the best scene for him is with Wells in the wheel. Even though I predicted mm-hmm. most of you know the engagement in terms of like their attitudes and their tones. The, the dialogue was well-written, and it was fresh, and it was really compelling. But the scene itself mm. wasn't a surprise. Um, no. But his rapport with Trevor Howard was, was really noteworthy for me because, as you said, Josh, or as you suggested, uh, Trevor Howard, to me, is the best thing about the film. Like, he's yeah. upstaging. He upstages yep. Joseph Cotton yes. in his scenes because he has he has more of the kind of... Uh, finesse about him than Cotton does in these yeah. scenes, and maybe that's the way he's written, and maybe he's directed that way that he wants the American to be a little, a little more uh, muscular and kind of blocky yes. than he wants the British guy to be. Maybe so, and I'll give Carol Reed some credit for that, perhaps. You know, um, so but I loved Trevor Howard in this movie. I thought he was really oh, good. Yeah. Anna Absolutely. Anna Schmidt's character, played by uh, Alita Valley, like um, she's all right. Uh, she's all right. I felt her a bit wooden. I didn't like her character terribly much. Mussolini certainly loved her as an actress, but I guess you can just add that to the list of things that we, we don't agree about <laughs> because I don't think she's that great. Um, Bernard Lee is good in the film. Yeah, he's he's good in the film. Uh, Orson Welles, well, he's the crazy guy, right? He's the creep. He's the, So he has the most fun to play. He always seems to have the most fun to play. His villainy, his moral destitution. Yeah. It, it, it kind of smile. They, they, like he's they, like, yeah, man. They, they mean <laughs> You can be that guy. You can have the fun with the role. And so he's having a yeah. great time as a bad yes. guy, even though he ha- he didn't enjoy himself because he's a grumpy <laughs> uh Dr. Winkle, Baron Kurtz. What's mm. his, what's the dude's name? Ernst Deutsch. Yeah, you're right. He was good. Siegfried Breuer was yep. all right in, as Popescu. Um, you yeah. know, like, it's, it's okay. Do you know what I mean? It's okay. Like, I, I just think that maybe Joseph Cotton wasn't... I don't think he was directed as well as he could have been. Like, if you think about him in these earlier films, particularly under Hitchcock, like six, seven years earlier in Shadow of a Doubt, like, Hitchcock gets so much more range out of him, so much more range out of him as Charles Oakley. Now, yes, you could argue, well, Charles Oakley is a far more complex character. Yes, I would agree with you. He is. But that also says Joseph Cotton is a far more capable actor. And I think that if you're going to have a prerequisite performance out there in the public you know mind now we didn't have video rentals and repeat viewings but shadow of a doubt has put him on the map as this type of an actor or because really it's his only villain role i think cotton never played a villain yeah. there but my point is point is he's a better actor you could have got more out of him if you wanted to carol reed i i don't see joe cotton doing much more than a a good job in the movie he's not the great actor he could have been he could have been pushed, taxed, written to have an Oscar-worthy performance here as a protagonist, and he never got that. So, yeah, acting, seven. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trevor Howard steals the show in his scenes, and mm-hmm. that's saying something because his character's not really that interesting. But, you know, and, uh, yeah, so that's it. Seven for me. I'm, I'm done. 
mm-hmm. go back back to double the Chapman for the atmosphere. Okay, so with the atmosphere is actually the highest uh, rating I will give this film. Uh, I, I gave it a nine. I thought the atmosphere was excellent. Uh, it captivated me. Uh, I thought again. I think I'm, when I say atmosphere, I mean obviously the, the way it was filmed. It was just amazing. Like I really enjoyed it. I, I loved um, the way just the way it was filmed I, I, the angles everything like it was just so uh it was just such an uh a captivating uh film to 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 look at mm-hmm. as a yeah. viewer it's a different feel because i i you know with that kind of post war like it's it's an interesting backdrop for a noir and uh, and I really and it was new to me, and so I really liked the feel. Like it, I it was you know it's like wow, okay, so this is different. This is like a noir that's not like in America. It's not you know in California. It's not in like an American city, and it's not either during the war or or during the depression. This is post World War Two in Europe, and I just I really enjoy. Also, just again like the way it was filmed. The, uh, like I said, the angles, um, the lighting—I'll say the fancy word—the mise en scène, just the, the sets, uh, everything was just so well done, so well placed. Um, and obviously, um, the shooting of the uh, the sewer chase, and uh, it's just I, I, that was the thing that really sort of it, it it pulled me in was was the the atmosphere and the characters. Like it felt cold. As much as like you guys were saying, it's true. Like um, there were aspects of the film where you're like, I, I couldn't get into some parts of it, but at the same time, the atmosphere in certain scenes would really bring me in. Like I was captivated by. Um, it was a lot of it was um, with again like the the chase scenes in the sewer and all the and all of those scenes really kind of brought you in and just sort of seeing. Um, the coldness of, of the cold, <laughs> the coldness of the post-war, you could really feel it, and I felt w- the film really portrayed that well. That's what I'm trying to get at. Basically, too long didn't read. Is I felt that the atmosphere in this film was to me it was the most important thing to to, to get across, and I think it did that with flying colors, especially. I guess I'm going to say, and I didn't know this until <laughs> I didn't read any of the uh, acclamations, even on the back of the 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 Blu-ray. And I didn't know that it won cinematography till after, and but I can mm. definitely see why. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I'm I'm with you, buddy. Uh, I didn't go for a nine. I went for an eight for atmosphere. Krasker's photography is mm-hmm. is awesome. It really is. Like it really captures that moral complexity and that kind of disintegration, you know, within what's going on around Europe. Like Vienna itself is a character yeah. in the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, not yeah, to, not to yeah. be too cliche. About no, it, yeah. no, it's true. Um, kind of like in Quiller Memorandum, the city becomes a symbol for like yeah. the, the psychological landscape. Yeah. And I like that a yeah. lot, you know, like all yeah. the rubble yeah. and the destruction. People are trying to live within it. People are trying to form lives yeah. around yeah. it. But at the same mm-hmm. time, it's still full of broken people running around like little rats on a playground, you know, like it is very much a playground that that four quartered square you know where you've got you know that it, it's like that place where all of the the political governances come together like the french right. the russian the americans that that place of no man's land is really quite an interesting set yeah. in the film where yes. they climb and jump around the mounds of rubble and stuff and you got uh, a ferris wheel already mentioned it you know and the that's ferris the playground wheel, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. yeah and just speaking of that as a bond connection there you go 
That's the mm. same. Uh, that that is the same Ferris wheel. Uh, I think it's called the the uh, recent rod. That's the same one in the Living Daylights yes. that uh, Kara and Bond yeah, go into. It's oh. not, not the same. No, not the same balloon guy. Though. Oh, definitely not the same balloon guy. <laughs> oh. No. Yeah, yeah the balloon guy. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Not the same balloon guy. Um, <laughs> Josh, uh, Josh had said. Um, Josh had said already a lot about the the Dutch angle, the close ups and stuff, and the camera work is is really Dutch impressive angles. and. That's one of the reasons mm-hmm. that the film, regardless of how we may or may not agree on story features, the film will never be boring to watch because there's so much visually no, appetizing about yes. it. You know, like uh, I really like the lighting, the rubble playground. Um, yeah. Like the quagmire, yeah. that political quagmire. Uh, visually, I understood it. Story-wise, I didn't get that at yeah. all. Like I didn't get the right. pressure at all, but I saw it visually. The on-location shooting is, is really cool. I took my marks away mm. for the zither score, and I know that's going to upset a lot of people. <laughs> well, people who uh, might care. It's okay. Um, you know, like, it started really well, and it was juxtaposing what was supposed to be kind of serious with, like, a jumpy sort of zithery thing. And I, I that's cool. Like, it grows a bit repetitive and irritating midway through the film. But by the time the film ended, I was honestly ready not to hear the instrument again for a long <laughs> oh, yeah, time. Oh, I, I yeah. Like, I was the same, the tune, actually. Yeah. The tune it might be a classic, right? Like... I get it. The, the, the tune's sure. a classic, but it lacks the score. And this is nothing against Karas because he was supported in what he did by what he was told by Carol Reed, obviously. But the, the score sure. really could have benefited from from some variety. Even a few orchestral moments yeah. just brought in there to do something a bit different. The Cafe Mozart music and some of the diegetic music, interestingly enough, is more interesting to me than... Um, the Harry like Lines. when those strings, uh, yes. but don't get when those don't get me wrong. Start getting like, pulled, you know, like when, like for example, when Carl closes the window and he and he's looking at his killer, for example. Yeah, that's that's right. Like I don't, I I, I guess yeah. like, I admire I admire the playing and the craftsmanship, just like I do with like a didgeridoo or Zamfir's <laughs> yeah. flutes or whatever. But I don't want a hundred minutes of it in any movie. Yeah, no, exactly. If I'm practicing, if I'm a performer, like. It's a bit of variety. It's a nice instrument when it's brought in to other things, like the celeste, like the guitar, like the. It's not a solo instrument that I'm gonna really no. get excited about listening to on its own and the yeah. same tune over and over. Yeah, it's over and over and over. It's monotonous. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Anyway, mm. so yeah, I was an eight for my atmosphere. Um, that's that's mm. me done. So Jeff, that's you at a twenty-four. That's you at a twenty-four. That's me at a twenty-one. Uh, pain pennies out of 30 and josh with his atmosphere score will total up your final well we talked about cinematography we talked about the on location filming but we need to talk about uh set design um there's anna's cramped yet high ceiling department how the bombed out staircase leads to a grand salon s corridor right to her apartment so you can see bombed vienna and the old grand grand, old grandiose vienna like it's like a bisection almost uh you know you get the details put in the recreation of the finale uh in the sewers for example they did a great job of recreating some of those sewers uh that that you saw earlier like in 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 under vienna they did a good job of recreating them at shepperton studios by the use of lighting to kind of match what they were what they had on location um i love how the camera navigates through the streets through the maze uh, so to speak and there's there's the editing uh you have i find it pushes the story along but when a moment gets so suspenseful and, and then cuts to a sequence that shows the protagonists are in over their heads like cruel twists of fate i found the editing was kind of jarring but it works so well in terms of like 
of, of, of the flow, I guess, of the montage. It's that rhythm. It appears chaotic, but yet it's still fluid. You know, uh, the sequences, they blend into each other. Uh, and then you got the music. Uh, it's been described as sort of the indifference of the world of Vienna to the plight of the characters. Like life goes on despite their turmoils. Like so The band plays on, so to speak. And as you had that zither strumming through hmm. both light and dark moments. And I can see, you know, how that can be polarizing. It, it, to me, it works. It works because I think it goes well with the camera work. It goes with the visual style of the film. Mm -hmm. It's a whole symphony in its way. Uh, that's kind of how I feel about it. But that said, uh, the moments when the zither tries to be tries to be in, tries to be in a score, you know, a, a dramatic a dramatic yeah. moment, or yeah, it doesn't... you know, or when the strings pull up and they get tangled at certain reveals in the film, you kind of feel the artifice to it a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, Yes, yeah. Somebody mm -hmm. needs to tell Carol less is more. You know what I mean? And less is more. I'm going to put yes. this point to you, Scott. Do you think a lot of perhaps some of the scenes would have been stronger story-wise, character-wise, acting-wise, if the zither wasn't playing all the time? Like, do you think? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that you weren't able to distinguish those. But do you find it might have made it difficult to kind of appreciate a scene or a performance more, uh, more like less because of the of like. Of, of the soundtrack because I found like in a way it was counterpointing to, it was counterpoint to so much stuff that was going on in the movie. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's the short answer. Yes. Um, I mentioned how at the, at the start of the film, I felt it worked to juxtapose the, the settings. Yeah. You know, it, um, it was kind of like, it was kind of like a curio, this little yeah. jaunty thing in uh, cultural or traditional um, music against you know the the darkness uh, but then it just became it just became distraction so yeah maybe i mean the, the fact that i'm using the word distraction would suggest that there's something to what you're suggesting so yeah, yeah sure I, I, yes short answer I, yes I, I think it did detract from some yeah of and again mm -hmm. i am not stating in any way that you know like you were unable to you know distinguish that in terms of your rate of your rating of the story i'm just i'm just trying to say is that that might have something like it didn't really bother me as very much uh but i can see how it could be polarizing for for other people and I, I and and that's my whole point in that regard. Visually, uh, visually, and even musically to an extent, um, in terms of the editing as well, like uh, and the production design, like I find that this is the highest mark that I'm giving this uh, this film, mm -hmm. and that is nine and a half out of ten. I take away points because right. I did find that the, the the zither only score was a bit too much. And to be fair, I, I found mm -hmm. some of like the not the non-scored sequences in the film uh much more suspenseful and and and, and worked well for the yeah. movie in terms of, of letting the actors act and and let, letting this, the scene play mm -hmm. out like they were much much better and it felt like i was more immersed in those scenes than i was you know in the in the zither scenes because i found when they're using the zither scenes when they're showing like you know chases through parts of the city and stuff like that you had the visuals to go along with it but when you have a scene for example right after like was supposed to be kind of almost a romantic scene between Harry and between Holly and um, Anna. They were playing the zither music still in that scene. It just seems like maybe they weren't confident about the chemistry there and they wanted to kind of force that. And then again, subconsciously you're getting the feeling that they're trying to force that relationship. So it feels even less real to you in that respect. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, like there's there's yeah, a lot of postmodern. Interesting point. There's a lot of postmodern I mean, filmmaking aspects in this movie. Carol Reed and Graham Greene made the movie the way that they did, 
And they're probably aware that some people wouldn't re react to it in the same way. And, you know, they made the film that they wanted to do. But again, we have to ask ourselves, I mean, as a viewer, yes, we can respect, you know, authorial intention, but we also want to be entertained. We don't want to be annoyed by certain things either. Right. So, well, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. And you, you weren't you weren't annoyed because you 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 went twenty seven point five out of thirty. Uh, that's one of the highest marks uh, you've ever given a, a film here on. Uh, yeah, I was I was definitely season. I was definitely in the minority, um, but I understand the. Well, I, I understand I mean, the. We, we we passed it easily. We passed it easily. Yeah. I was a twenty one. Jeff was a twenty four. You're a twenty seven point five. It's just different levels of appreciation. I and think, so. like I said at the outset yes. of my scoring, exactly. Um, I think that this was an excellent addition to a three non-bond yeah. season because it oh, does yeah. have so many bond links and the atmosphere. If you think about the story of the living daylights, I know it's very different, but um, the story, you know, taking out the snipers, like you can imagine this sort of a setting playing mm -hmm. out that way mm -hmm. too. You mm -hmm. know, like I think, I think that the third man yeah. has a lot to offer and um, my mark might've been a bit lower on it because I had higher expectations perhaps coming back to it from when I first saw it as a younger guy. But um mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's a good movie, absolutely. Is oh, yeah. it number one? It, uh, no, not on my yeah. list. But uh, you know, did I, you know this I, is I'm, one of not, Roger uh, Ebert's uh, favorite films? Yeah, that's that, cool. That's you know? cool. That's fine. Roger Ebert. Um, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, I like Roger Ebert. I got a lot of respect for yeah. him. But you know, um, we don't have to eat the same hot no. dogs. To, do this, we? You know I, I, mean? I think this is the beauty. <laughs> I, I think of like in terms of like of, of of the subjective opinion. It's just amazing, like how a piece of art can evoke emotions in different people. Now, are those people seeing things that that other person isn't seeing? Or does their life experience, you know, make them more cynical to what they're seeing? Or does their life experience make them more open to what they're seeing? Uh, it's, I just find that really fascinating, yeah. the different yeah. reactions we had from this movie. So, I, I, so I'm very happy that it was a good pick for a three non-bonds. And for I just sure. want to go back to, it's very interesting because you mentioned how like, you know, you wanted to see if this held up from the last time that you saw it in, you know, in, in school. I remember you said you had a more fond memory of it. And now it's kind of, you know, you've kind of sort of uh, changed that opinion a, a, a little bit. You know, you look at it in a different light. Whereas like before, I remember you were saying how, uh, you know, like I wasn't really a fan of the Born Identity when I first saw it. But then when you when you watched it again recently, mm -hmm. you know, you actually said you enjoyed it immensely. So it's just interesting how yes. you get those flip and flops and how I think in different mm -hmm. times, yeah, in, flip -flops, in yeah. different times yeah. in our lives, you know, things mean different things to us. Uh, I love that. And I, and, right. and I love yeah, it. Totally. Yeah. And I, I was obviously, yeah. I was obviously more of a visual viewer back then than I was a, a story. Like now I'm, you know, I'm very much a story guy, I guess. I, I don't that's, know. That's true. Um, that's true. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, professionally, I'm more interested in and more, you know, concerned with story than I am. The you are an right? English teacher. I'm not a filmmaker. I'm, I'm a, I'm a teacher, <laughs> yeah, yes. exactly. Well, maybe. I, I maybe am surprised that the, I am surprised that the BFI gave it like number one. Mm -hmm. uh, the number one British know, film so. of all time, not number one. Yeah, I, I mean, that's what I meant. Like as a British film, yeah. I was a bit surprised. But well, I mean, uh, if if I can bring this to a conclusion, I might just uh, give. Give Josh's um, selection here a, a further plug. If, if it's noir that you like, everybody, get yourselves over to Lighting the Pipes, where Josh is uh, breaking up our big mystery and uh, crime reads with film noir samplers. We've got uh, some, some good film noir discussion over there on Lighting the Pipes. 
myself and Josh going on through that. So uh, yeah, if you, if you like your film mm-hmm. noir and you want it in a different setting, different flavors, get yourself over back there. Back to LA, uh, boys. Back, back to San Francisco. Yeah. We're going to close this show, and we're going to have done three three non Bond seasons yeah. in our uh, crazy in our time together. So that that's pretty cool. We've uh, we've had we've had a good run with these. I'm looking forward already to to next season. But before we get to next yeah. season, we got a lot more here on Bond by Numbers left to go. Uh, we've got a holiday special coming up soon, yep, yep. in time for Christmas, and then of course we'll continue with the rest of our season after the new year. And probably bring it to a close sometime end of February or March, perhaps. We'll see how we do. Yeah, we'll see how we do. So, um, unless unless there's anything else you guys would like to say in closing, uh, thanks, Josh, for suggesting this film. It was good chat. You're welcome. And thank mm-hmm. you, everybody, for listening. Thanks to everybody for listening at home. Um, we know that there's lots of competition out there for your attention. Uh, by all means, send us an email at bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com or uh, you know, catch us on the Instagram at uh, bbn underscore pod. Uh, yeah, so over to you guys for the last words. I'll say my goodbyes right now. Goodbye. Uh, well, I was I was just going to say that I think the three for this season, the three films we chose is the well, the best three that we've chosen. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that it, it, was a, it was a really good plethora of, of films that kind of stick stick to our guns uh as to you know related to bond but also you know are sort of independent on their own and they're different types of films uh very well respected and and very fun films to watch and critique so i I think personally these three films we chose uh, for this season uh were my favorite three that we've done so far yeah, nice I would point. have to agree on that, Jeff. Uh, very good, uh-huh. very good point. Um, I don't really have much to say other than I hope people enjoy this episode and uh, you know let us know what you think of the Third Man. Uh, do you think that uh, over time, you know, is it more of a visual aesthetic masterpiece more so than like the number one film in British cinema, which includes which I would say if it's number one BFI list, you would think of course that it would be reinforced with uh, a very well received uh, story. You know, and, and and performances, but you know, but it, but in this case here, it appears, you know, I would say just taking the three of us and the way that we view the film, I would say that's, you know, that's debatable. Uh, there could be other people who were, you know, uh, less enthused about it. So I'm just curious to see, you know, like what the overall response is to this, because this is this is, I guess, a film historian canon film. Other than that, that that's all she wrote for me. Uh- Right, guys. Well, thanks very much. Uh, good chat here today, and we'll see you soon. Bond by Numbers will return. Dun, dun, dun.